Wendell Wallace here of Wendell's World in Sports. A special dedication and remembrance to the great American hero, icon, and freedom fighter for all, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who, with the assistance and compliance of governmental leaders in this country, was assassinated at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, on the evening of April 4th, the year being 1968. While on his birthday, we have a national holiday where we pay homage and tribute to the life of Dr. King and the sacrifices he made for a country sick with oppression, discrimination, ignorance, bigotry, prejudice, and intolerance, maladies we still face today. Let us also remember the day when his life was taken because of who he was, what he stood for, and ultimately what he died for. This is a segment from my upcoming podcast episode on Wendell's World of Sports, available anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. God but we must see that the struggle today is much more difficult. It's more difficult today because we are struggling now for genuine equality. And it's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee a livable income and a good, solid job. It's much easier to guarantee the right to vote than it is to guarantee the right to live in sanitary, decent housing conditions. It is much easier to integrate a public park than it is to make genuine quality integrated education a reality. And so today we are struggling for something which says we demand genuine equality. every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King, who lived by nonviolence. I pray that his family 
can find comfort in the memory of all he tried to do for the land he loved so well. And welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Namaste. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Shalom. Konnichiwa. Bonjour. Bonsoir. Monsieur. Mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos. Mi amo a Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. I recorded that opening on the 53rd anniversary of when the great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated with the help and compliance of those in this country who could put that stuff together. So we speak about moving forward in this country. We speak about understanding. We speak about educating. We speak about learning. We speak about growing. We speak about all these things to move in the right direction toward equality for unity, love, and togetherness. Those things also have to be discussed in terms of the history of this country, the good, the bad, the ugly, the tragic, especially when it comes to the oppression, especially when it comes to those in governmental places that have put the, put the, uh, put the noose around the neck of those who are trying to fight for equality and freedom. Peace and love, special dedication, Malcolm Medgar and Martin, and many, 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 many others before and after them who have fought for the rights of others, who have fought for the rights of the downtrodden, who have fought for the rights of the oppressed, who have fought for the rights of those who have been enslaved in terms of the opportunities, in terms of everything that the, uh, that the uh, Constitution is supposed to grant everybody. Special dedication for those who fought and died for people that have those type of rights. Special dedication on the day that I recorded that, April 4th, to Martin Luther King Jr., the 53rd anniversary. Not a, not, not, not so much as a, as a celebration, but as a remembrance of what happened on that day and who was responsible for his, uh, for his murder for his assassination. So there we go, moving forward. So just wanted to uh, give my thoughts and opinions about that. Hope that uh, you took something from it. So there you go. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So man, let's get into what we're going to be talking about today, sports-wise, because there's a lot of things that, that I want to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. The NFL Draft, Draft News, the New York Jets have traded Sam Darnold. Well, how about that? J-E-T-S-T-R-A-D-E-D-S-A-M-D-A-R-N-O-L-D. He was traded to the Carolina Panthers for a sixth-round pick in this upcoming 2021 NFL Draft, the second and fourth-round pick in the year 2022. So my question, and I'll be discussing this later on in my podcast, is exactly what does this mean now for Trey Lance and Justin Fields? Because by all indications... The San Francisco 49ers are going to be drafting Mac Jones. Mac Jones, Mac Jones. So you have the Jacksonville Jaguars drafting Trevor Lawrence. You have the New York Jets on the assumption to select Zach Wilson. You have the 
San Francisco 49ers guessing that they're going to be drafting that they're going to be drafting Mac Jones. So what does this mean now for Justin Fields? What does this mean now for Trey Lance? Are we going to see a drop? Are we going to see a fall? Are we going to uh, see a Dan Marino situation? Are we going to see a Matt Leinart situation? Are we going to see a Aaron Rodgers situation? Are we going to see a Brady Quinn situation? Are we going to see a Johnny Manziel situation? Are we going to see a Geno Smith type situation where coming into the season, coming into the college season, that these quarterbacks, well, I would, the ones that I just mentioned, Manziel, Geno Smith, um, Aaron Rodgers and such were all regarded as high first round draft picks who were regarded in some instances as the possibility of being the number one player picked in their draft. But for some unknown reason, be it rumor or innuendo, that doing their homework or whatever, they, they, they fell. Um, so I'm thinking to myself, we, we almost have this every year with a quarterback who we hype up, a quarterback who we start talking about with the upcoming draft because as I mentioned before on my podcast not too many people out there who aren't NFL scouts who aren't NFL coaches who aren't uh, really educated in the position of an NFL player we can kind of deduce what makes a good quarterback we can kind of guess in a novice type of way what makes a good uh, running back or what makes a good wide receiver but most of us me included can sit there and tell you what makes a great safety what makes a great guard what makes a great tackle what makes a great defensive tackle what makes a great quarterback for the most part we can break down the 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 pros and the cons and the strengths and the weaknesses of a quarterback or a running back or wide receiver so because of that when the draft comes and when we speak start speaking about the draft especially during this period where there's less than four weeks to get to the draft Folks like me, folks like you, folks like Mike Greenberg, folks like Skip and Shannon, folks like you here on the radio and such, they start speaking, they start glossing over, they start um, speaking about the quarterbacks because that's the most glamorous position in the most glamorous sport here in this country. So because of that, sometimes we start building up, sometimes we start making uh, storylines where if you check the franchises, if you check the upper management of franchises, when you speak the when you, when you start speaking to the scouts and such for these franchises, I mean, they're sitting there going, why are y'all up there speaking about this guy's going to go in the top five? This guy's going to go in the top ten. This guy has a chance to go number one. Not with us. We hold the number seven pick. We ain't interested in him. There's another team. We hold the number five pick. We ain't interested in him. We have the guy with the number 12 pick. We ain't interested in him. We have a guy with a number 15 pick. We ain't interested in him. So while we're on one side of the track speaking about where is this quarterback going to go? Is he going to go in the top three? Is he going to go in the top five? Is he going to go in the top seven? Where is he going to go? I heard this. I heard that. I heard these. I heard those. We're speaking about that to give you guys something to listen to. Meanwhile, on the other side of the tracks, you have folks who are actually making the calls, who are actually going ahead and doing their due diligence. And they're saying, why are these guys up here talking about we're interested in taking quarterback Bob Smith? No, we're not. We brought him in. We thought he was pretty good. We kind of liked him a little bit, but shit, you know what? The quarterback we got now is a good enough, and you know what? Our need for an offensive lineman, our need for a quarterback, our need for a linebacker is much greater than stretching and reaching for this guy. So those guys can babble on all they want to about the possibility of us trading the pick, the possibility of us taking this quarterback, the possibility of us doing this, that, and the other, but we're going to go ahead and we're going to do our thing. So you get two different stories, but because, again, we have to give you guys content, and none of us, and none of you guys want to hear us go on and on and on and blathering on about the offensive guard. What's the most, what's the, what's the position that's going to get you to the most attention? 
It's going to be the quarterback. So we're going to be speaking about the quarterback. So that's the one reason why if you see an offensive lineman start to fall, the guys at ESPN, the guys in the NFL Network, they're not going to be sitting there going, oh my gosh, what's going on? Let's put the camera on that defensive tackle and get his reaction. I mean, with the exception of maybe Warren Sapp back in the, uh, what, 95 or 96 or 98 draft, whenever that was. But with the rare exceptions, you're never going to see a guy in the green room that's a linebacker or a cornerback or an offensive tackle have the same type of uh, attention being given to him if he was supposed to be a top five, top ten pick, and we're already at pick 24, and he's not been drafted yet. We're not going to put that spotlight. We're not going to put that. Uh, we're not going to put that attention on him. But if it was a quarterback, oh yes, we are. So my thing is which quarterback are we talking about here Trey Lance or Justin Fields is going to take that precipitous fall and is that really going to happen because say for instance if Justin Fields or Trey Lance drop out of the top eight or drop out of the top nine if depending on what happens with San Francisco drafting Mac Jones Atlanta are they going to trade out of the pick are they going to uh, pick Kyle Pitts or Jamar Chase or Devonta Smith because they believe that they can get a couple of more good years out of Matt Ryan or maybe Denver because John Elway is a little bit gun-shy after missing so many times with so many quarterbacks. He's going to take the safe pick and draft uh, Patrick Sertain and give Drew Locke one more chance. If all those things happen and all of a sudden Trey Lance and Justin Fields start falling out of the top nine or ten picks, Will teams then try to move up into the top 10 or top 11? Are teams going to call up Detroit? Are teams going to call up Atlanta and say, hey, man, you know what? Can we work here? Let's see if we can go ahead and do something. And will those teams who will be looking to move up into the top 10 who desperately need a quarterback like the Washington Snyderskins, like the New England Patriots, like the Chicago Bears, like the Pittsburgh Steelers, like the New Orleans Saints. I don't know what their capital is to try to even move up to that area, but Will they all of a sudden then start scratching and sniffing and making that call to uh, teams who might want to trade down or trade out of that pick because Atlanta says, you know what, we uh, can go ahead and we're going to use Matt Ryan. The Detroit Lions are like, we just signed Jared Goff. We're not interested in drafting any other quarterback. So if you want to, uh, if we want to get a few more picks, if we want to get a few more assets, then yeah, we'll take Washington's call. Yeah, we'll take Chicago's call. Yeah, we'll take Pittsburgh's call. Yeah, we'll take New England's call. Sean Payton on line one? Yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll accept the charges. So it'll be interesting to see exactly what happens with that. Wendell's World of Sports. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So the NFL quarterback situation with Fields and Lance and Mac Jones and everything, we'll be discussing those on the podcast today. But... Uh, I don't know, man. Another lawsuit being filed against Houston, Texas quarterback Deshaun Watson bringing the total to 22. Oh, man. I, I'm not a, I don't know. I don't know what to say about this. I'm like you, man. Flabbergasted is the word. Head scratching is the word. I don't know. Allegations uh, was that now Watson assaulted a licensed uh, statistician by touching her with his penis and exposing himself. Let me tell you something, man. Deshaun Watson is reaching Bill Cosby-type status concerning this matter. You know how Bill, it first started with a couple of folks. First it started with a comedian, black comedian, you know, throwing out 
you know, putting Bill out there. I, I thank him very much for that. If he was really doing those type of things, which a jury said that he did. But, uh, you know, a, a, a comedian put Bill on blast. And then all of a sudden, the uh, the women started coming out decades later talking about, yeah, Cosby did this, Cosby did that, Cosby did these type of things. And when it comes to some of the disgusting things that Bill Cosby did, there is no uh, statute of limitations. If Bill Cosby did those things 30, 35 years ago and the female wants to come out now and say those type of things, then Bill Cosby should face the penalty. Bill Cosby should face the penalty and consequences for his actions. So I'm not saying, again, this is not to uh, bring down women. This is not to bring down the Me Too movement. This is not to uh, bring up old ignorant uh, thoughts and opinions about women where if you, if why didn't you come out and with these allegations years ago, if this thing really did happen, why did you wait so long? Your money grubbing, low lives, skanks, whores, that and the other. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that, man. But, you know, we live in a society where it's almost like if we start seeing a few more ladies, females come out with these allegations, I don't know if it's going to start swinging the other way or I don't know if the NFL is going to have to... Uh, do something, but man, where there's smoke with the Sean, there's fire. I've said that before, but now where there's fire, there's a raging inferno. Two or three females coming out and saying this shit. Okay, smoke, embers, there might be a fire. Now when we're hitting 22, where did it get to the point where we just start scratching heads? Because with Bill Cosby, all these females came out after decades. So Bill Cosby was raping and assaulting you know, lots and lots and lots of women, but over 50 plus over a long period of time. Now, I guess with Deshaun Watson, I don't know the timetable of when the first incident happened to the last incident that happened, but in a short amount of time, it's like, man, Deshaun, what, what, what are you doing? What's going on? And I have to kind of stop myself a little bit because I'm talking in a way that's accusatory. I don't know. I have no idea, but damn, when you start talking about tw over 20 women all of them who don't know each other with the same modus operandi or with the same story. I don't know. I don't know because here's the deal. And here's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up now. We'll move on because until something really happens with Deshaun, I don't know. He, he's got to go somewhere. He's got to go on Ellen. He's got to go to Oprah. He's got to go to Rachel Nichols. He's got to go to Josita Anderson. He's got to go somewhere. He's got to go to ESPN. He's got to go to Fox uh, Sports. He's got to talk to somebody. He's got to talk to a female and say, hey, look, you know what? I really can't get into the particulars because there's lawsuits going on, but I just need to sit here and say that, look, I am innocent of all charges. If he is, his silence and my thoughts and opinions, and look, I'm not Rusty Harden's lawyer, and I'm quite sure with the money that he has, he's hired a PR firm and everybody else to uh, tell him exactly what to do in this situation, and this PR firm that he's hired has probably dealt with high-profile uh, public figures who have gotten themselves in these kind of troubles who have been faced with these allegations. So they're much more knowledgeable and experienced in handling these things than I am. But if I was being accused, if you were being accused of something so heinous, and let's just say that I, so I really was innocent. Let's say, for instance, put yourself in that situation. You really were innocent. And you had this female and you had that female making these type of allegations against you. Wouldn't it be the first thing that you want to do is, man, I want to get up and I want to say, no, no, these women are lying. No, this, this did not happen. I don't care if I did hire Rusty Harden. I don't care if I did hire some big money attorney. I don't care. I'm going to be like, hey, look, man, I mean, I'm sitting here silent and these women are filing lawsuits and I'm being 
you know, my my my, uh, my name is being drugged through the mud and, and all of these allegations and stuff that I did. The stuff that they're saying that I did is sickening, it's disgusting, it's foul, it's, it's horrible. If I truly did not do these things, if you truly did not do these things, wouldn't you want to say, look, I won't go into the particulars. Believe me, you can, you can be sitting side by side with me. We can do a, uh, a tape interview and we can kind of look and see which one we're going to keep, which one we're going to edit out. I'll have a ton of lawyers around me to stop me anytime, zap me, you know, tase me. Anytime I'm going to be saying something in my defense that might be, um, that, that, that might be um, not going my way in terms of, you know, hey man, save that for the trial, baby. You're giving away too much information. Shut the fuck up. Don't go there. Don't go down that avenue. It's going to hurt you in the court case or it's going to hurt you moving down the line. If I start going down that route, tase me. But I got to get out and I got to say, nah, these people are lying. This ain't me. No. Especially for who I am as a person, especially moving forward. If I'm trying to get traded from the Houston Texans and I still want to play football after I'm suspended four to six games or eight games, whatever the NFL gives me, I've got to sit there and I've got to try somehow to clear my name. Once I get back on the playing field, I'm cool. Once I get back on the playing field, no matter if I'm playing for Houston or Chicago or Philadelphia, or Denver, or whoever they trade me to, or whoever I'm playing for, once we get past this storm, and I get back on the football field, and I start start throwing touchdowns, and I start being dynamic, and I start playing like a top five quarterback, and I start having my franchise win football games, and ultimately win playoff games, and ultimately win conference championships, and praying to God that ultimately win Super Bowls, Everything that's going on with me right now, all 22 allegations, 21 of them are civil, not criminal, civil. So there's still an opportunity where I can still not go to jail. But after a while, if I can kind of keep this, if I can kind of, you know, keep the public on my side a little bit, if I have to slander these women and I have to trash these women and I have to go down that route to keep me, uh, to keep me afloat, Keep me given the, the opportunity to play football in the National Football League and collect those checks. I mean, damn, I just signed a $140 million contract. Hell yeah, I want to keep as much money as I can after I pay off these skanks for uh, saying the things that they're saying about me. So I need to go out and I need to start getting the public on my side. I need to go out with my charm and my smile and let people know that, hey, this ain't me. Look at me. Listen to me. You guys have followed me for years. You guys have followed me some since I was in high school. The folks in Clemson, South Carolina, I'm sorry, who started this? Who started this generational dynasty that you have, that you guys have right now, that you guys are privileged to in Clemson, South Carolina? It was me. It was me. I was the one state-born, South Carolina-born. I think Deshaun Watson was born in South Carolina, but still. Deshaun's got to play that card, man. Deshaun's got to get out there and be like, I would never do something like this. Because of what's going on, I can't really get into the particulars. But look at me. Listen to my voice. Listen. Read my background. Read the stuff that I've done. My charity work. All the things that I've done. You really aren't going to say that. You're really not going to believe them females over me, are you? No, of course not. Of course not. I'm looking forward to the day that I clear my name. 
I'm looking forward to my day in court, whether it be the court of public opinion or whatever, where I can give my side of the story so I can tell you exactly what I'm doing. I'm a God-fearing human being. I'm a God-fearing man from down south of South Carolina who was responsible for the dynasty known as the Clemson football team right now. Come on, Dabo, say something. Come to my defense. Deshaun's got to start that campaign, man. Deshaun's got to get out and say something. Deshaun's got to get out and say something. I think. I think. I was thinking about him because I was watching this this old documentary. not old. It came out in 2020. But I was watching a documentary a couple of nights ago concerning the alleged serial rapist known as Russell Simmons. If you want to watch this, it's on YouTube. It's a documentary which originally aired on HBO um, in 2020. It's called On the Record. And the film centers on allegations of sexual assault and harassment levied against uh, Russell Simmons, who, you know, we all know who Russ Simmons is, co-founder of Def Jam and, you know, one of the most powerful, one of the more powerful black men um, in this country, one of the more, a man with a lot of influence. And the film features interviews with over 20 women who have accused him of rape and sexual assault. But it's like you were listening to these women. It's like, yeah, he did this and he did that. And the one woman who the film was centered on, I mean, she was explaining. I mean, she was talking about, yeah, when Russell did this to me, when Russell took me upstairs to his, to his apartment after a night, and she was query, and she was leery, and she didn't feel comfortable. But this is her boss, and she's trying to do some things in terms of making herself in the music business, and not and doing it the right way, not by was sleeping with people or whatever. But I mean, you know, it, we're speaking about a woman here. We're speaking about the time being in the 1990s. I'm sorry. We're speaking about a, a musical genre known as hip-hop, where just like a whole lot of other musical genres, male-dominated, Females are kind of viewed as skanks or play toys or fuck toys or whatever uh, inferior objects to be to be fucked. So this female was like, you know, I'm feeling a little query, I'm fearing fearing a little leery. But my boss is telling me that you know, instead of taking a cab, that you know, I'll go ahead and I'll call you a um, I'll call you a, a limo for the service to take you home. So won't you come upstairs and? To my apartment and wait there. And oh, by the way, I forgot to mention there's a uh, there's, a, there's a cassette that I want to uh, want you to uh, hear. That's in my uh, bedroom. You can go ahead. It's uh, located in my uh, cassette tape there in my bedroom. Why don't you go ahead and uh, take a listen to that while you wait for the limo? And the woman went in there to his bedroom, and the next thing you know, here comes Russell Simmons, but fucking naked with a condom on. And basically she was like, what the fuck? And he was like, don't fight it. Basically he raped her. But she was saying, you know, in the world that we were living in at that time, you know, you had the Anita Hill situation. You had the uh, Desiree Washington situation. You had all of these uh, situations where women were claiming that these powerful men raped them or sexually assaulted them. And what happened to them? Clarence Hill, Clarence Thomas, nothing. Um, Mike Tyson spent some time in jail, but guess where he is right now? Does anybody remember Mike Tyson in terms of that right now? Has Mike Tyson's ability to earn money, Mike Tyson's visibility, Mike Tyson's, um, uh, I guess what you could say, he, he's still a man who's w widely loved, 
as of right now, when Mike Tyson was in jail, our community fucking embarrassed them ourselves by wearing free Mike Tyson t-shirts and women, black women, embarrassing themselves, making fools of themselves, degrading themselves, my community, making fools out of themselves, up here defending a man who raped a woman by saying, well, it was 2 o'clock in the morning and he's Mike Tyson, what the fuck are you doing going up to his room? What, like, so she deserved to get raped? Really? A black woman deserved to be raped? Really? Our community's coming out with that bullshit? Black women are coming out with that bullshit? Farrakhan's coming out with, like, fuck Farrakhan, but you know what I'm saying? You know, free Mike Tyson t-shirts and all that bullshit. So those women are seeing this, this woman who's being raped by, um, who was being raped and sexually accosted by Russell Simmons is taking a look at that and saying, well, what chance do I have? I mean, here was a woman, Anita Hill, Desiree Washington and others, whose name was drugged through the mud. She's like, I don't want that shit to happen to me. I, I want to stay in this business. I want to be make an impact in this business. This is, I want to uh, create. I want to do all those things. I can't go ahead and say, Russell Simmons did this. If I did that, people are going to say, no, no, no. He's a great guy. He's a wonderful guy. He's done this. He's done that. He's going to uh, basically deny all allegations. He's got the money to uh, keep the thing on the down low, kick the can down the road in terms of justice is concerned. What chance do I have? I have no shot. So... I'm just going to be moving on. And that was not only her uh, decision to make, not only was that, um, you know, something that she decided on. The women that Russell Simmons allegedly raped, that was their attitude. It's like, you know, what, what am I going to do? Go to the police? What am I going to do? Go to the, uh, go to the news media? What am I going to do? There's really nothing I can do. So the only reason why I bring that up, and once again, it's called On the Record talking about the serial rapist scumbag known as Russell Simmons. Anybody know exactly what happened with that? It's been over a year. Russell Simmons been arrested? Russell Simmons in jail? Russell Simmons been sued? Russell Simmons, anything happened to him? Anything? Anything? Exactly. How long did it take for R. Kelly to, uh, finally go to prison. How long did it take before the black community wised up and just because the man can sing, say, yeah, you know what? I guess raping and imprisoning and, you know, Patty duking 13 and 12-year-olds from a man who's in his 30s, probably not this really good. I know the man, the chocolate factory and all those things. Wonderful, fabulous, I believe I can fly and all that bullshit. Wonderful, awesome, fantastic. But you know what? I mean, when you're in your late 20s and early 30s and you're up there fucking with uh, 12 and 13 and 14-year-old females and basically holding them as slaves, not cool, especially when they're all black. Not cool, not good. How long did it take the black community to get their fucking head out of the sand to come up with, to uh, finally deduce that? So it's a situation where, again, bringing this all the way back to Deshaun Watson. If these females, as of right now, came out I'm putting my face in front of a camera. I'm letting my name be known. I'm going forward with this. I'm going to, me and my other 5, 10, 15, 20, how many accusers want to get out there and really take this to uh, take this to Front Street and really bring it to the masses and let them know, open me up, do everything. Do your best, but I'm sticking by what I'm saying. I'm sticking by these allegations. What I'm saying is the truth. God is my witness, all of those type of things. 
How many of the females are going to be comfortable enough to do that? Meanwhile, with Deshaun, he has that avenue. He has that platform. And because of who we perceive, because of who we perceive Deshaun Watson to be, he can get in front of Oprah. He can get in front of Ellen. He can get in front of Rachel Nichols. He can get in front of uh, any female out there and give his side of the story or defend himself or put on an act, whatever way you fall on Deshaun Watson. And after that, how much better do you think his chances are of, look, quietly pay these women off and let's just keep moving forward, get me on the football field and get me back to playing football? Again, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. I'm not a PR person. I don't know. I don't know. Luckily, I've never raped anybody, and I'm not in the position to be Deshaun Watson where I have the money and the clout and the fame and the status as a public figure to actually navigate myself through shit like this. So I've never been in that situation. But my guess, again, would be probably just like yours. Hey, look, if I got a bunch of women talking about I uh, did these type of things, I'm gonna if I'm innocent... I want to get out there and say, no, 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 no. So, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But with the Deshaun Watson thing, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, man. I don't know. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Going to be speaking about that. I already spoke about that. So, that's my deal on Deshaun Watson. College basketball. I am going to be talking about that. I want to save this subject for the last segment of my podcast. So the college basketball season's over. No, I'm not going to be going head over heels, all being Georgetown in this segment. Calm down. But um, the Baylor Bears, man, they are, were the best team in college basketball. I guess labeling Gonzaga the greatest team of all time or one of the greatest teams of all time or putting them right next to the 1976 Indiana squad who went uh, undefeated for an entire season. Whoops! Dominant performance from Baylor against previously unbeaten, one of the greatest teams of all time, Gonzaga Bulldogs, 86-70. So, let me see if I get this straight. If we were going to crown, not we, because you weren't going to, at least, you know, not on the podcast, because you don't do a podcast, right? You're just sitting here enjoying this wonderful one. But if you were going to be going to work the next day, if you're going to be hanging out with your boys the next day, if you're going to be going to the sports club the next day, if you're going to be going to the bar the next day, if you're going to be going to the strip joint the next day, if you're going to be sitting waiting to get your hair cut in the barbershop the next day, and you were going to be talking about Gonzaga undefeated, are they the greatest team of all time? Can they hang with the UNLV team that won the championship? Can they hang with the Georgetown teams? Can they hang with the UCLA teams of Luau Sindor, now known as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Walton and that dynasty? If they were going to be able, if you guys were going to go with that, if you ladies were going to bring up that discussion about Gonzaga being the greatest and putting their, putting their team with those great teams, mainly based on the accomplishment of going 32-0, but... If you guys were going to do that with Gonzaga, after the pasting and the beating and the beatdown that they uh, received by the Baylor Bears, are you going to put Baylor in that place? Now, all of a sudden, instead of having, oh, well, you know, um, all-time great teams, all-time great seasons, Georgetown, UNLV, Indiana, Bill Russell-led University of... um, uh, San Francisco Dons and blah, blah, blah. Are you now going to put the Baylor Bears 
what's the difference between 30 and 0 or 31 and 0, whatever Gonzaga was going for. I mean, Baylor, what, 28 and 2? I mean, where are we going to put it here? I think that we were so amped. I think that folks were so amped because of a chance for history in terms of the first undefeated team of 45 years that we completely forgot about how dominant and how great Baylor was. So we focused so much on that perfect season for um, Gonzaga that, oops, (laughs) wow, that, that Baylor team is really doggone good, especially during this season with the pandemic. Baylor fell off the map for about three weeks. Because of a COVID outbreak. And when that happened, they were 17-0 and beating everybody. When they came back after three weeks, yeah, they lost to Kansas at Kansas. No shame in that game. And then they lost to Kate Cunningham and Oklahoma State in their conference tournament. So, I, I don't know. I don't know. But we'll go ahead and recap that game and moving on to uh, what's going to be happening in the offseason. Hey, congratulations to Hubert Davis from Fairfax County, Virginia becoming the next head coach at UNC, special dedications and reverence to the great Roy Williams. Might get into that because when I ask you about name the great coaches in college basketball, if I would have asked you two or three years ago or even two or three weeks ago before Roy Williams decided to retire, and I asked you and say you you know you're 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 a decent college basketball fan, but you're not diehard. You'll watch the tournament. You'll put a few bucks on the tournament. You'll be interested in the tournament. But for the most part, they're not living and breathing with conference play. You're not worried about the um, preseason uh, tournaments before the regular season or for before the uh, conference season starts for these teams from the ACC. So you're not really interested in college basketball in November and December, especially because you're so inundated about what's going on with the uh, NFL. You know, you really don't care about... Um, college basketball so you're that kind of a fan for college basketball but if I ask you name the great coaches if I ask you this question a couple of weeks ago name the great coaches in college basketball you'd say Krzyzewski you would say Calipari and maybe just maybe depending upon what region of the country you live you might say Bill Self you might say uh, somebody else you might say Jay Wright possibly but you know one of the names that a lot of people might not unless you're from ACC country, one of the names that might not come up is going to be Roy Williams. I might have to, uh, you know, you'll say, oh, yeah, well, you've got Calipari, you've got uh, Coach K. Uh, let me see who else is out there. Uh, 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 now, I would say Roy Williams at UNC. Uh, yeah, 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 him, yeah, him too. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing for the accomplishment that Roy Williams had in his career that we say the name John Calipari or the Placid to placid to just average college basketball fan would mention Coach K and Coach Calipari before mentioning Coach Williams. Now, Coach K, because he's the greatest college basketball coach, one of the greatest coaches of his generation. But, you know, for people to say John Calipari before they would say Roy Williams, unless I've mentioned before, unless you're living in the, um, uh, you know, Tridewater area or in North Carolina, very interesting. Very interesting. So that's one of the reasons why I say when it came to the excellence, the greatness of Roy Williams, I think he's underrated. What he did at Kansas, what he did at North Carolina, resurrecting two historical programs in Kansas and North Carolina, the mess that he took over 
that Matt Doherty created the year, and then in a couple of years later, he's playing for a championship. 900 games, one winning percentage, I believe, over 70%. I mean, you know, that's that's all-time great stuff right there. But a lot of times, we have Coach K and then that next tier. No, 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 no. Uh, Roy Williams belongs right there with Coach K. And it's Coach K, Calipari, then, um, no, 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 no. It should be Coach K, Roy Williams, um. Oh, yeah, Calipari, um. Then you start racking your brain about who else could I say. That's when the Jay Wrights of the world and the Bill Selfs of the world come into play. But uh, I just thought that always Roy Williams, I don't know what it was, it. but uh, I always felt that he was somewhat underappreciated and underrated. And now when I say that, I'm not saying everybody thought he stunk. I'm just saying that, again, he should be on the same level as a Coach Krzyzewski, who's regarded as one of the greatest coaches of his generation and one of the greatest coaches of all time. We don't ever mention that with Roy Williams, and we should. That's why I say he's underappreciated and underrated. So those are the things that I'm going to be talking about. But but, uh, before we do all all those things, before we talk about what's happening in the world of sports, just a little bit more, I gotta go ahead and I've got a boogie. And when I come back from boogieing, when I come back from listening to this great bumper music that I'm gonna be playing, before we take this break, before you get down on the get down, before you listen to this song and then run to YouTube and talk about try to find that song so you can download it yourself because it's so doggone good, because it's so doggone great, because it's so doggone catchy. Because it's so doggone danceable. Go ahead and dance a little bit. No one's watching. Don't worry about it. You can make a fool out of yourself. Get your heart rate up. Get them limbs moving a little bit. Fine. Nothing nothing, uh, nothing to be ashamed of. Before we go ahead and do all that, before I get to the next topic concerning a certain sport moving out of the state of Georgia, time for us to get down and boogie. May the Lord bless you real good. May the Lord bless you real good Woke me up this morning, started me on my way May the Lord God bless you real good Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Your host, Wendell Wallace, that's me. Getting down to a little James Cleveland. And when y'all thought, see, you thought when I said we're going to get down to Boogie, you thought I was going to do something. You thought I was going to play something nasty. You thought I was going to play something. You thought I was going to play something with a lot of curse words and a lot of nigga this, nigga that, and all this type of stuff. No, 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 no. You can boogaloo for Jesus. You can go home. You, you can do the bump and grind for the Lord. Go ahead and bump and grind with the Lord right now. You can go ahead and do that. You can get down, you can move, you can jam, you can do all them things with, with the Reverend James Cleveland talking about may the Lord bless you real good, woke me up this morning, started me on my way. May the Lord God bless you real good. I'm, in fact, I'm not ready to get back to talking sports just yet. Turn it up. Turn this up so I can get on down. Turn this up so I can sanctify. Turn this up so I can repent. Turn this up so I can get down and boogie. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Give me just a little bit more, please. Real good. 
Thank you, Jesus. Ah, that's enough. I feel good now. I feel ready to go. I feel ready to move. I feel ready to talk about what's happening in the world of sports. Wendell's world of sports again. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, sanctified, feeling good, talking about what's going down in the world of sports, talking about what's happening in Major League Baseball, talking about everything that's happening in the world of sports. I feel good. So let me turn that down a little bit. I want to thank you very much for that. Uh, feeling good, feeling good. Wendell's world of sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Hey, man, sometimes I got to go there. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going down and discussed today in the world of sports. Starting off the first, second segment of this podcast. The biggest news coming from Major League Baseball this season. No, it's not about Shohei Otani throwing 101 miles per hour and then hitting the ball uh, up to uh, Los Angeles. No, it's not anything of that nature. Too early in the season for that, right? It's all about Major League Baseball decision to no longer shut up and pitch, shut up and swing, shut up and manage their decision to move their all-star game out of the state of Georgia. He's leaving on that midnight train out of Georgia. That's what I'm talking about. Major League Baseball will move its all-star game out of Atlanta after the state of Georgia passed voting bills that will disappropriately affect citizens of color. As you might know or might not know, on March 26th, Governor of Georgia, that piece of shit, racist asshole, Brian Kemp, signed legislation passed by both state houses and Republican-led um, houses to over overhaul state elections, roll back voting by mail, and other absentee balloting uh, situations and efforts uh, to go ahead and basically get Georgia back to being a red state. For the first time in a long time, Georgia sent both Democrats to the House and the Senate and uh, Republicans, mainly white racists, white nationalists. Yeah, they actually had them in Georgia. Ever tried Forsyth County? Were like, no, nah, we can't be having a bunch of niggers running up there and uh, representing our state. So the racist in chief of that uh, state, yeah, I'm calling Governor Kemp a racist. You do racist actions, I'm going to call you a racist. I'm going to call you a piece of shit. I'm going to call you a fucking gutless coward. I'm going to call you a punk. I'm going to call you a spineless, gutless coward. I want your wife and I want your kids to know that you are married to, honey, you're, you are married to a bitch. You are married to a punk piece of shit who just happens to be the governor. Kids, you need to know something very important. Your father is a spineless coward. Your father... Brian Kemp, he's a spineless, cowardly bitch. He's a punk-ass, racist, white privilege, no moral, spineless, gutless, baldless bitch. That's what your daddy is. And everybody who voted for that bullshit is right there with him. Right there with him. So, again, this bill that was passed by both um, houses... And the Republican-led uh, overhaul for the uh, state elections, rolled back voting by mail and other absentee balloting, uh, balloting efforts, and banning the distribution of food and water to those standing in line to vote. So with the gerrymandering and all these long lines that black folks and people of lower income and lower income communities are going to have to be sometimes sitting the entire day. Now they're going to be putting in a law talking about you can't give them food. You can't give the water because of the fear 
that someone's going to come up while they're waiting in line. See, the deal is with this is the reason why they're not going to be uh, allowed to distribute food or water to these folks is because they're fearful that these folks who are going to be giving them food or water are going to come up to them and say, so um, who are you voting for? Really? You're voting for candidate X? Well, let me tell you something. You know, candidate X is no good because he did this, that, and the other. Meanwhile, the candidate you should be voting for, candidate Y, he does this, that, and the other. So basically, the law states that, you know, you can't try to change someone's opinion. You can't campaign for someone while someone is waiting in line. So these folks are putting in the law saying that, you know, there's been this outpouring um, nefarious action for those who have been giving food and water and such because while they're giving these guys food and water they're also trying to uh, campaign still for their candidate that they want to see win this election it's bullshit it's nonsense everybody knows that they're everybody with a brain in their head everybody who has a common sense who has some common sense everybody knows that this is bullshit everybody knows what they're doing it's amazing how when you have the highest voter turnout amongst black folks and poor folks in that state, all of a sudden now, it must be because the elections were rigged. Even though there's been no evidence whatsoever, even though the election process run by Republicans in that state said that there were no nefarious actions among uh, voting in any of the districts, in any of the precincts, because the Republican Party, because those white nationalists, because of those bigots, because of those assholes, because of those gutless cowards, because of those punks, because of those pieces of shit led by the main guy, Governor Brian Kemp, is like, nah, you know what, fuck it, we're just going to go ahead and we're not going to go ahead and try to start reaching out to black and brown people, we're not going to try to start reaching out to those of lower income to see what we can do to bring equality, to see to bring to see what we can do to bring equal opportunity to everybody. Now we're not gonna do any of that. We're just gonna make it harder for those guys to vote. Because I'm telling you, and see this is the way racist thinks. This is the way ignorant people think. This is the way bigots think. This is the way people who listen to Fox News and listen to that fucking guy who's in hell right now burning for eternity, Rush Limbaugh, and other far-right radio and, and media outlets. See, the people in Georgia who listen to those fucking bigots, who listen to those idiots, who listen to those race baiters, this is what they know about black people. They're lazy, they don't want to work hard, they don't want to sacrifice, and they're really not smart enough to really do anything, or they're... There's, there's enough of them that aren't really smart enough or dedicated enough. So what we can do is we can go ahead and we can rig some things. And if we put these things into place, black people then are too lazy to go ahead and try to go around those obstacles that we put in there. So if we put in all of these type of obstacles, black people are too lazy to go ahead and try to vote anyway. So that's the reason why they're doing it. Again, they didn't have any problem with any voter register, voter uh, fraud or anything like that. Didn't have any type of problem with that until black folks started showing up the vote. Because black folks are smart enough to know that they don't want a racist in the White House for another four years that would really fuck them over if that happened. So black folks were like, oh, hell no, nah, we're not going to have another, we're not going to have four more years of this bullshit. We're not going to have four more years of this incompetence. We're not going to have four more years of this corruption. We're not going to have four more years of this bigotry. We're not going to have four more years of this nonsense. We're not going to have four more years of this. And it gets even worse 
No, 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 no. And when it came to, again, the vote for the Senate, black folks were like, oh, no, 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 no. We're not going to have a Republican-led Congress. No, we, we saw what happened with that bullshit for the last four years. No, 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 no. It's about time we start cleaning up the mess that the former commander-in-chief in name only put this country in. So we're going to have to go ahead and start cleaning this up so the folks in Georgia, the black folks in Georgia, the white folks in Georgia who had the decency and the sense along with the Hispanics, along with the Arabs, along with um, the Asians and everybody else, they had the good enough sense to say, no, fuck that bullshit. Mm -mm. Georgia is now blue. The racist assholes formerly running that state said, hold on for a second. We got to do something to kind of change and get it back to the way it was. Basically having ignorant white folks in charge or basically having folks in charge who will kowtow and who will do the bidding of the lowest common denominator in the state of Georgia. The same fucking idiots who put in Marjorie Taylor Greene. You see, that stupid bitch, she knows exactly what the fuck she's doing. Acting like a damn fool. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's placating and kowtowing to the racists and the idiots and the morons and the fools and the clueless who put her in there. So they put Marjorie Green in there to be a racist. They put Marjorie Green in there to shake things up. They put Marjorie Green in there to make sure that Georgia got back to the way it was being dominated by white folks. The majority of decisions that were being made were mainly being made for the benefit and advantage of white folks. So Marjorie Taylor Greene has her marching orders. So she can act as stupid and as racist and insensitive and bigoted as she wants to. Her constituents, those feeble-minded fools who put that stupid bitch in there to act like, to act like she does, that's who she's, that, that's who she's answering to. She's not answering to me. She ain't answering to you because you have a brain in your head. You have common sense. She ain't answering to you. She don't care what you think. I'm out here in Las Vegas. I don't. My thoughts and opinions about her aren't going to be the deciding factor whether she gets reelected or not. It's those fucking jackass bullshit motherfuckers idiots in her district that put her in there. That's who she's answering to. And she's like, be, and they're like, be as fucking stupid and ignorant and bigoted just like us and you need to be. Represent us. And those acts are exactly what she's doing. She's representing the fucking idiots who put that stupid bitch in there. So it's like, boom. So how are we going to fight that? How are we going to get around that? <laughs> I, I'm glad Major League Baseball decided to join the party. I'm glad Major League Baseball decided to say enough is enough, at least in this situation. I'm, 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 lo- I'm loving it. And I think Major League Baseball. You guys can talk about Rob Manfred all you want to and talk about he needs to be fired. He's a horrible commissioner. And, and has he made his mistakes? Just like Adam Silver in the NBA? Just like Roger Goodell in the NFL? Just like Gary Bettman in the NHL? He sure has. Far from perfect. But um, I applaud him wholeheartedly on this one. So, you know, this is what uh, Commissioner Rob Manfred said in the statement concerning the decision to move the All-Star Game out of the state. He said, quote, over the last week, we have engaged in thoughtful conversations with clubs, former and current players, the major, uh, sorry, the Players Association, the Players Alliance, among others, 
to listen to their views. I have decided that the best way to demonstrate our values as a sport is by relocating this year's All-Star Game and Major League Draft. Major League Baseball fundamentally supports voting rights for all Americans and opposes restrictions to the ballot box. He said that we will continue with our plans to celebrate the memory of Hank Aaron during the season's All-Star festivities. In addition, Major League Baseball's planned investment to support local communities in Atlanta as part of our All-Star Legacy projects will move forward. Hopefully those projects and those investments are for the black community. We are finalizing a new host city and details about these events will be announced shortly. Now, according to Buster Olney, Coors Field in Denver has been chosen to host this year's All-Star Game. The game is scheduled for July 13th. Now, many people are saying, man, you know, I mean, we're moving the game out of Black Lana, Hot Lana, because, you know, from my community, from the black community, a lot of folks, as soon as they, um, as soon as black folks get themselves a higher degree and good job and get themselves a little bit of money, they, they want to run down to Atlanta and then talk about how great they are compared to every other black folk living anywhere else in the uh, USA. So, you know, you got the bougie blacks down there in Atlanta talking about how how far superior they are than others in my community because, you know, we got, I went down, the, I, I got my degree at Morehouse or Mauer, Howard Brown or Morris, Jimmy. they got their degrees at Morris Brown or Spellman or any other of the HBCUs down there. And all of a sudden now they want to, uh, hang out down there in Atlanta and talk about how everybody else ain't got shit and everybody else in my community ain't doing nothing. Uh Uh-huh, okay, bougie. Guess what? Y'all ain't gonna get an all-star game out there either. So, uh, you know, put that in your poke, put that in your uh, blood and smoke it. So, you know, that was like, well, why are we moving the game out of Atlanta where you you have a large black community population down there and move it to Denver? Ain't no Negroes living in Denver. What's up with that? This, that, and the other. Now, for the purpose of what we need to do, yeah, we need to make that decision. What if, if if black folks in Atlanta were so powerful, if black folks in Atlanta, these educated Negroes who come down there talking about, you know, I live in Atlanta, I live in hot Atlanta, I live in black Atlanta, so, you know, the rest of my folks from the uh, from the neighborhood, what are y'all doing? Well, what the hell are y'all doing having uh, Brian Kemp as your governor? What, what What's up with that? Don't, don't tell me, Mr. High Degree, don't tell me, Miss multiple degrees, college degrees, PhDs, bachelor's degrees. Don't tell me y'all didn't know nothing about Brian Kemp. What y'all doing having him as the governor of your state, bougie? If y'all are so high and mighty about uh, how strong and how strong and how smart and how sophisticated and how mobilized and all that stuff y'all are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to have to be folks from other communities, from other states. It's going to have to be the black community from Washington, D.C., from Los Angeles, California, from Memphis, Tennessee, from Minneapolis, St. Paul, from Boston, Massachusetts, from New York City, from Dallas, Texas. Black folks from those communities are going to have to come down, mobilize in 2022 and see what we can do to get that piece of shit governor that y'all let slip through your fingers and become governor of the state of Georgia. We're going to have to come down there and clean up your mess, along with our allies from the white community, from the Asian community, from the Hispanic community. What's up with that? So, yeah, don't be talking about Major League Baseball ain't doing y'all right. Major League Baseball, that, you know, wolf and sheep clothing type of bait and switch type of deal, getting that game out of Atlanta and putting it in Denver. Uh-uh. I'm telling you, them white folks in Denver wouldn't have uh, high, wouldn't have allowed someone like a Brian Kemp to be governor of that, uh, of that state. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
bougie. So, look, I'm glad that uh, Major League Baseball went ahead and did this, went ahead and made this move. And again, they're still going to um, keep their word in terms of helping those in terms of uh, planned investments and supporting the local communities down there. Financially, whatever, good, good. Now, there's been precedents set before concerning a uh, professional sports league, all-star game being moved from one city to another because of political reasons. If you remember the 2017 NBA all-star game moved out of Charlotte, North Carolina because of laws discriminating against the transgender community. Remember Steph Curry was uh, one of those words like, man, you know, you're going to be up there messing around with the Curry family, Dell and Steph and those guys who are from that area. You're going to, you're going to uh, spoil that uh, reunion for those guys. Yep. In the NFL, they moved the 1993 Super Bowl out of the state of Arizona after the state refused to recognize Martin Luther King Day as a holiday. So, again, it's nice to see Major League Baseball join the 21st century and part of the third reconstruction of this country for more unity, for more harmonious relationships, and more respect amongst each other. So, I was... I was wondering when they were going to show up because, I mean, for the most part in 2020, when everything went down, when the revolution started, I mean, the NBA was out there, the NFL represented, could have been better, but they were representing. What what happened with uh, Major League Baseball? Where were they? They were very silent, noncommittal, tepid, placid, you might say, in their response of acts of social upheaval defiance of oppression and racism and their acts of domestic terrorism on black and brown folks. Oh, the NBA, you know, those, you know, them brothers were out there real quick. In the NFL, yeah, them, them, them voices were being heard. Where was Major League Baseball? Hello? Major League Baseball, are you living in this country? Are you still in this country? What's going on? What's happening? You know, the, the worst part of all, while all of this was going down and we heard from LeBron and Jalen Brown and all these other folks in the NBA and we had Black Lives Matter and we had the kneeling and we had uh, Chris Paul and we had all these folks basically trying to put the atrocities and trying to put what was going down concerning our community front and center while the NBA was doing their thing and NFL had their offseason but yet and still we heard from that league in concerns with that. Major League Baseball didn't say a peep didn't say a word concerning it, and the most disturbing thing for that league should have been no one really cared. No one really called them out. No one was sitting there saying, man, what in the name of Jackie Robinson is MLB doing as far as not letting their voices be heard concerning this matter? I mean, Oakland A's catcher Bruce Maxwell took a knee during the, the National Anthem in 2017, right? He said that he felt unsupported by his peers and by others in the sport. Now, he hadn't played in the uh, Major League since 2018. He's played the last few years down in Mexico. Now, yeah, you could talk about his batting average, and maybe he wasn't good enough. I don't know. I'm not an expert on Bruce Maxwell. but And I'm not going to compare Bruce Maxwell to Colin Kaepernick. But still, he felt that his taking a knee to support uh, the acts of moving forward to stamp out racism, police brutality, and such, he felt that he was kind of on an island by himself. No one there. Not saying that I'm quite sure. Hopefully, Maxwell is not saying everybody needed to follow through and do what I did. But he was 
kind of like, well, damn, because at least y'all say, hey, you know what, even though I feel felt not comfortable in doing that, that I support my teammate, my brother, Mr. Maxwell, in doing those things, he felt that he was left on an island. Like, hey, this, is, this, is your, this is your fight, buddy. See you later. Don't expect us to help you out. So, again, you know, I, I, during that time, where were they? Where was their voice? Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet, right? The Ken Burns baseball documentary, docu-series, which was beyond brilliant by Mr. Burns. I mean, baseball is as American as anything, right? Where were they? Where were they when the Reconstruction started? Where were they when the revolution in this country started in 2020? Where were they after the situation with George Floyd? Where were they? Where were their voices? Where were their presence? Where were they? Now, the league allowed Black Lives Matter patches and organized league-wide kneeling for social justice in the aftermath of the nationwide protest of the death of George Floyd by uh, police in Minnesota. Okay, the Los Angeles Dodgers recently released a video in support of Black Lives Matter. Okay, that's nice. That's good. That's that's fine. But damn, isn't that kind of like just scratching the surface? When you take a look at the history of your sport, when you take a look at the importance of your sport, a sport that produced Jackie Robinson, Larry Dolby, Hank Aaron, Roberto Clemente, Sandy Koufax, Hank Greenberg, Kurt Flood, Frank Robinson, the Negro League, for heaven's sakes. Sandy Koufax, who was like, you know what, on this holiday, for the Jewish holiday, I'm not pitching in game one of the World Series. I'm good. I'm cool. Hank Greenberg, because he was Jewish, playing for the Detroit Tigers back on the 30, had to face discrimination because of uh, him being Jewish, the uh, uh, anti-Semitic situations that he had to go through. I mean, baseball has, along with boxing, has been kind of like one of the one of the elixirs to try to cure the disease of discrimination and oppression and separate and unequal. I mean, they produced Jackie Robinson for heaven's sake. They produced American idols, heroes, pioneers, legend. The great sport of baseball did. Who else? What other sport produced someone? with the strength, with the resilience, with the dedication for the cause than baseball with Jackie Robinson. What, boxing maybe with uh, Muhammad Ali? Maybe basketball with uh, Bill Russell? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Maybe football with uh, Jim Brown? But you, you take a look at these other sports, man. Jackie Robinson, Larry Doby, you, you, you think that if Jackie or Mr. Doby or Mr. Aaron or Mr. Clemente or Mr. Flood or Mr. Robinson or maybe Oscar Charleston or maybe a Buck O'Neill from the Negro Leagues, if, if they were living in today's time, would, would those guys be silent? Would those guys be docile? Would those guys be taking a backseat to other sports? in terms of letting their thoughts and their grievances and their complaints and their thoughts and their opinions be heard concerning the murder of George Floyd by this domestic terrorist known as this police officer, the discrimination that happens to us every single day from black communities, brown communities, poor communities. You you think that Jackie Robinson, you think that Roberto Clemente, you think that Frank Robinson, you think that Henry Aaron, 
Do you think those guys will let a Jalen Brown from the NBA, some 22-year-old guy, get his voice out there, get his thoughts and opinions out there before those pioneers, before those American heroes, before those freedom fighters, before those civil rights heroes? You don't think the Sandy Koufax and Matt and Hank Greenberg wouldn't be walking arm in arm with Robinson and Dobie and Aaron during this time? Sacrificing? You don't think that those guys would be lending their voices, lending their support in this matter with their black brothers and sisters or their black teammates? What what's Major League Baseball doing? What was Major League Baseball doing in that situation? So I'm I'm glad that they decided to make this first step. Or I'm glad that they decided to make this first big step. They made little steps, small steps, convenient steps. But this is something where it's like, this, this, is, this is something substantial. This is something where it's kind of like, you know, you're going to get a reaction out of this. I mean, what they were doing before allowed Black Lives Matter patches league-wide kneeling for social justice the black players in the league talking about hey you know we're black and you know give us our rights and give us our freedom to stop discriminating against us that's nice that's good that's a good first step but that's not really impactful that's not really putting it on the line that's not really putting it out there what was baseball going to do to really make some ripples in the waves, in the ocean of oppression and discrimination, of intolerance. What were they going to do? This was a ripple, my friend. What those guys did, they threw pebbles into the water with the Black Lives Matter patches and everything. Okay. What happens when you skip a rock, when you skip a pebble across the water? It kind of bloop, bloop, bloop. kind of makes a little bloop, 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 and then it goes down, right? Very little impact. What Major League Baseball did by deciding to move the All-Star game in the draft out of the state of Georgia. Georgia! That wasn't a pebble they threw across the uh, river or the lake. That was a big-ass fucking boulder. And let's see how far them ripples are going to go and how far they're going to spread. Because all of a sudden now, Major League Baseball is going to be on the wrong side of Alex Jones, they're going to be on the wrong side of MAGA fools. They're going to be on the wrong side of one political party. They're going to be on the wrong side of a certain news uh, channel. They're going to be on the wrong side of right-wing radio. They're going to be called chumps. They're going to be called spineless. They're going to be called gutless. You gave in to the far left. You gave in to those people. That's what Major League Baseball is going to be facing. And unlike the NBA, where the majority of the players are either black or from other countries to where black folks say, I don't really give a fuck, I'm ready for this fight. And Europeans are like, hey man, I'm just waiting for the season to be over so I can get back to Croatia or Australia or somewhere else. You know, Major League Baseball, we're speaking about a sport that has the majority of their players being white. I don't know how many are Democratic. I don't know how many are Republican. I don't know how many are progressive. I don't know how many are conservative. I don't know how many are far left. I don't know how many are far right. I don't know how many voted for Biden. I don't know how many voted for the piece of shit that was currently in the White House before. I don't know. But this is a situation where Major League Baseball 
is going to be facing some hmm, some criticism. How are they going to move from this? Are they going to kowtow? Are they going to stand strong? Are they going to fight back? Are they going to be docile? Are they going to be aggressive? What's going to be happening? I applaud Rob Manfred. I applaud the owners who, for the most part so far, we haven't heard any owner come out and be like, well, I really was. Well, you have the Braves come out and say, well, it wasn't our decision. But, you know, unlike the NFL owners who probably would have fought tooth and nail, probably wouldn't have even given Roger Goodell the uh, permission to go ahead and do this. At least the uh, owners in Major League Baseball, who last time I checked were all white, all white, rich, old males, they gave Rob Manfred the the okay to go ahead and do this. So I think also that uh, we need to uh, give a special thank you very much to the owners of baseball for showing more compunction and showing more... um, belief in his players than the Indian the, uh, than the NFL owners ever would. So good deal for Major League Baseball man for doing what they did. Finally join joining the party. And it's a good first step. Just like Jackie Robinson when he went to the uh, World Series only weeks before his death in nineteen seventy three, the uh, I forgot what game it was between the Baltimore Orioles and the Cincinnati Reds and they asked him to uh say something and he said that he's extremely proud and privileged to be here, but he'll be even more proud and privileged when he can look across and see a black manager managing in the uh, managing in the major leagues. One of the last things that he said as far as uh, any public statements or anything, I think Jackie in this situation would be, is in heaven saying that right now. Saying, hey man, great first step. I'm proud of you guys, but let's not end it there. For the justice and equality for everybody, let's keep moving that forward. And I'm quite sure just before he uh, goes ahead and plays um, his game tonight in the uh, Heavenly Baseball Association, along with uh, Josh Gibson, along with Roberto Clemente, along now with Hank Aaron, who was just a recent acquisition as he um, was granted into the pearly gates. Um, I guess they would try to get Ty Cobb, but I don't think that you can make, uh, I don't think that you can make uh, a trade to join the Heavenly Baseball League if you're burning in hell. So maybe that might not be a good idea. But uh, yeah, right before those guys take the field tonight and play the team that has uh, Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle and and all those guys, and hopefully that uh, looking down that all of those guys gave Major League Baseball the thumbs up and the A-OK in terms of what you did. Great first step. Now let's continue to make progress from your perspective Let's see what we can do from your standpoint to have more justice and equality, harmony, togetherness in this country, in this world. Keep it moving.
one of those world in sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things getting down and discussing today in the world of sports. NFL draft news. The Once again, the New York Jets, as I mentioned before in the first segment, have cleared the way to draft Zach Wilson, or should I say have uh, made their choice. They traded their former number three overall pick in the 2018 draft. Franchise quarterback of the near future, Sam Darnold, to the Carolina Panthers in return for Sammy D. The Jets are going to receive three picks, a sixth rounder in the 2021 draft later this month, and a second rounder and a fourth rounder in 2022. Now, according to ESPN stats and research information, if the Jets select Zach Wilson, which everybody's expecting that they will, that means that they would become the first team in the common draft era, so we're talking about 1967, to select not one, but two quarterbacks within the top three overall picks in a four-year span. That's some dysfunction right there, ladies and gentlemen. According to a story written by ESPN Rich Sanimi, uh, the organization was actually conflicted by this decision to uh, go ahead and trade Sam Donald. In fact, uh, Jets head coach, new head coach, Robert Slayla spoke highly of him, saying that he has unbelievable arm talent. If you saw that uh, little ditty that Lewis Riddick put out, remember when everybody was losing their mind because Zach uh, Wilson on his pro day at BYU made some ridiculous throw in his shorts and sweats and no pads, no helmets, no one running after him, not in a real NFL game, and everybody was losing their mind because they had never seen anything like that. What arm talent, what arm strength, what, this is unbelievable, this, that, and the other. Then Louis, Louis Reddick went on Twitter and was like, really, guys? And showed Sam Darnold making almost the exact throw against a pass rush in a game through a dime on the run to a receiver for a touchdown. Man, I forgot the team that they were playing. It might have been the 49ers, but... Lewis Reddick was like, for all y'all losing your mind about you've never seen Zach Wilson or you've never seen a throw that Zach Wilson made in a, in a, ever, before, take a look at this. This is actually from a actual game with a quarterback by a quarterback where many people are saying is no good and needs to be replaced. So, you know, Robert Slayla was like, well, man, wait a minute now. Before we start sitting up there talking about we need to get rid of Sam Darnold and draft Zach Wilson, if that's the plan, Look, I, I'm thinking that, again, Slayla was talking about he has unbelievable arm talent. So the Jets considered keeping Darnold and, parting, and pairing him with um, a rookie quarterback. But the organization was then going to be sitting there talking about, well, wait a minute, man. If we go ahead and we use our number two pick to uh, draft a quarterback, or even if we trade down and maybe draft a Trey Lance or something like that, what chances exactly are we going to have in terms of, uh, you know, being a, a, you know, being a, a decent franchise where we're going to be having ourselves a quarterback controversy, man. We can't even handle ourselves with one quarterback. Now we're going to be starting about, now we're going to be having a situation where we're going to have two quarterbacks who could play, who might not play, who this, that, and the other. And we're going to have to go through that bullshit every day of a quarterback controversy. Nah, too much of a distraction. So that played a role in eventually saying that um, Sam Darnold need to go. Also, the financial implications that played a role in the decision. If the Jets go ahead and draft themselves a quarterback, Zach Wilson, or really just using that number two pick, the cost for the Jets is going to be $35 million over four years. With Darnold, there would have been a financial uncertainty beyond the 2021 season that the Jets didn't exercise 
his fifth year option for 2022. So you're also thinking about the situation. Well, if we go ahead, we trade Sam Darnold, we get some extra draft picks, then we can go ahead and draft ourselves a quarterback who we feel is an immense talent. And for four years, we'll have an opportunity to really load up in terms of the building around him because he'll still be on a rookie quarterback uh, structure. Or he'll, be, he'll still be on his rookie contract. Hopefully, he can go ahead and become a really good quarterback, you know, like Russell Wilson was with the Seattle Seahawks to where we can have ourselves a really, really good team because we can spend a lot of money on the wide receiver or the offensive tackle or the pass rusher or the linebacker or the cover corner. And normally the money that would go to uh, a franchise quarterback reaching somewhere about $20, $25, $30 million a year, instead of of having all that money being placed on one person, we can spread that around to get ourselves a much better all-around team. While, as I mentioned before, uh, this quarterback, who is an important part of our team, is still on his rookie contract. So at the end of the day, they were look, let's just go ahead and have a fresh start for everybody. We'll part ways with Sam Donald, Donald, wish him well, and save that money, take that money, draft the quarterback, and go ahead and start building our team that way. So my, my question, I guess, and I'm asking this question here on Wendell's World of Sports the Podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace, is, what what exactly are they expecting from Zach Wilson? If you're selecting someone with a number two pick, he's going to be able to come in and start doing some things in terms of showing some promise probably near the end of his first season. There's going to be from week one to week eight. Now we're speaking about 17 games being played. So for the first week on to maybe the midway point of the season, week eight or week nine or whatever the team's bye week is, it's going to be... A rocky road. It's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be some good games. There's going to be some great games. There's going to be some horrible games. There's going to be some questionable games. Uh, unless your name is Patrick Mahomes, for the most part, that's the life of a quarterback in his first year playing at that level of uh, football. So Zach Wilson is going to have some games where he's going to come out and he's going to show some promise. And then the next week he's going to come out and throw four interceptions and one touchdown and complete 52% of his passes in the Jets getting blown out. And when the if the Jets start losing, if the Jets start off 0 and 3, 1 and 4, 2 and 5, 3 and 7, what is that going to mean for his confidence in the mental moving forward when you're speaking about a media market like the uh, New York area? So all of these things are going to come into play, and we're speaking about you know what are the pieces that are going to be put around him for him to succeed, and the coaching staff is concerned. The Robert Slayla is a defensive guru. That's where he he didn't get the job because of his offensive chops. He was um, a great defensive coordinator. Now, a coach is a coach and who you hire plays a huge role in how you interact with the team and how you connect with the team and how you uh, do those type of things. Communication skills from a head coach I think are a much more important criteria to be a good head coach rather than someone who's a genius either on the offensive or defensive side of the football. Yeah, that helps. But if you ask Bill Belichick in Cleveland what uh, tanked his tenure, his first year as a head coach, it would be that, well, I really um, was aloof. I really was distant when it came to my players. A lot of times these really successful coordinators who don't uh, become really good head coaches, many examples multiple times, multiple opportunities that they get 
It's because, not because of their X's and O's, not because of the schemes and the game plans they draw up. It's because of the lack of communication they have with their players, the lack of leadership that they have within that locker room with the players. Now, Slayla, as I mentioned before, great defensive guy, and I think he's a guy who's a really great leader where the team is going to be willing to follow him. Now it depends on what are you going to do about the offensive side of the football, who are you going to hire as your offensive coordinator, who are you going to hire as your quarterback coach and such. So all of these things are going to be very important for the growth maturation and the expected reaching of potential for Zach Wilson because he's already been placed with the, hey, he has Patrick Mahomes-type qualities. We're not saying he is Patrick Mahomes, but what we're saying is that some of the arm talent, some of the throws, some of the things that we saw on tape, saw on film, saw at BYU, saw on his pro day, kind of reminded me of Patrick Mahomes. Talking about setting a guy up to fail, if that's going to be the case. So Zach Wilson is coming in not as a game manager, Zach Wilson is not coming in like maybe like a Jared Goff type. Zach Wilson is coming in to uh, basically be the star of the show and be the star of the show in a relatively quick amount of time. So how is that going to play out? How is that going to work? Especially if you take a look at the roster, especially if you take a look at the skilled players that surrounding that will be surrounding him. How, how exactly is that going to work? When you have... Tevin Coleman, Ty Johnson, and Josh Adams as your running back. Coleman, who follows Slayla from the uh, 49ers, he's gained 800 yards only once. That's the most he's gained in his career, and he's carried the ball the most in his career 167 times. Now you're going to be asking him to be a, a, uh, a featured back or a number one back? You're not going to have Zach Wilson from day one throw the ball around the yard 45 to, you know, 40 to 45 times, so you're going to need a running back. Tevin Coleman, a journeyman who didn't do anything in Atlanta, didn't have a mulchrum of success in San Francisco. You're going to ask that guy to be that guy? You're going to go back to Frank Gore again, who was the starting running back for last season? You're going to rely on a, a duo of running backs, a Tevin Coleman and a Ty Johnson? What does Josh Adams bring to the table? That's the uh, running back you're going to have to alleviate some of the pressure that's going to be on Zach Wilson? Wide receivers. Take a look at the wide receivers that the Jets have coming into uh, next season so far. Corey Davis, Jamison Crowder, Josh Doxson, a lot of ex-Washington football players on this team. Denzel Mims, Braxton Berrios. That's that's the uh, squad. That's the that's the wide receiving group that you're going to have for Zach Wilson. Anybody see a number one receiver on that board? Anyone see a number one wide receiver on that depth chart? Corey Davis, that's going to be your guy. Former Tennessee Titans, that's going to be your guy. That's going to be the number one option. Now, what are the Jets going to do in the draft picking a wide receiver? We don't know. But they're not going to select Jamar Chase. They're not going to select Devonta Smith. I don't know if they're going to be in a position to draft Jaden Waddle. What are you going to do? What exactly are you going to do if you're in the New York Jets to upgrade that situation? Enough to where it can give... Uh, Zach Wilson, a partner to where he can grow with. You know, for Peyton Manning, there was Marvin Harrison. Where's the uh, Marvin Harrison for the New York Jets to work with uh, what the Jets fans are hoping to be the same impactful, uh, the, the impact that Peyton Manning had on the Indianapolis Colts? They're hoping that 
Zach Wilson has that type of impact with the New York Jets. You can't do that if you're going to be having Denzel Mintz and Corey Davis and Jamison Crowder as your wide receivers or then Tevin Coleman as your lead rusher. So who's going to be that compliment? Who's going to be that guy? Who's going to be the guy that is going to bail out Zach Wilson when he's playing quarterback week three in the NFL? Be interesting. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. And again, the Jets are, a far, are far from a finished product. When you're speaking about their areas of weakness, the need for a pass rusher at the defensive line, Leonard Williams for the New York Giants is looking pretty good. Now, who was he with? Oh, yeah, that's right. Looking for a cornerback, looking for an improvement along the offensive line if you're the New York Jets. What are you going to do? Now, after the deal with Carolina, New York had a total of 10 draft picks. Two first-round draft picks, number two, which all assumption is they're going to go with Zach Wilson. And then the number 23 pick they got from Seattle as part of the, um, as part of the uh, Jamal Adams trade. They're going to have a second-round pick, number 34. You have two third-round picks, number 66 and 87. You have a fourth-round pick. You have two fifth-round picks. And then you have two sixth-round picks. So there's going to be plenty of opportunities for the Jets to address some of these needs of, uh, needs of improvement. But are they going to be enough to uh, signify anything special? Jets fans, you shouldn't be thinking about the Jets doing anything in terms of, hey, look, man, if, y'all got, if you guys finish the season 6-11, and 7-10, somewhere around there, that's great improvement. That should be considered a successful season. Anything under five wins? Not. Anything over six? Yes. So finishing five and 12? But finishing six and 11? Eh. Hope. Hope. And of course, near the end of the season, you have to see exactly where Zach Wilson is going to be in terms of his development. Because I, I really haven't looked at the schedule. The draft is not here. So I don't think we can get a true feel on what the season is going to be for the New York Jets, especially when you're speaking about the NFL and you're speaking about injuries and such. Uh, There's no such thing as looking at a schedule in April, May, or June, or July and saying, okay, this is what this team is going to be. This is what their record is going to be. These are what these expectations should be. Not, Not this early. But if you're going to be playing that game and you're taking a look at the AFC East, and you're taking a look at the areas of improvement that New York's going to have to be dealing with or is going to have to upgrade for their team to compete. The Buffalo Bills have Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs to worry about. The New England Patriots made big moves and spent a lot of money in the uh, offseason to upgrade their roster and free agency. And they could still be in play to improve their quarterback position through a trade or even a draft pick. Uh, Belichick and those guys might decide, you know what, if Fields or Trey Lance or somebody's going to fall outside of the uh, top 10 or somewhere near the top 10, what can we do to move to get into position to go ahead and draft those guys? So that is still in play for the New England Patriots. The Miami Dolphins are a young up-and-coming team with a boatload of draft picks and a Tua Tungavailoa that uh, they're hoping can improve upon a rocky, inconsistent uh, rookie season that he had. So... You know, if you're New York, those are the areas you need to be looking at in terms of, okay, these are the strengths of our competition in our division. What are we going to do through the draft or wherever to try to improve those areas? 
course we need a cornerback. We're going to be dealing with Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs. Of course we're going to need to do something about our offensive and defensive line. You have a Brian Flores. You have a Bill Belichick who are very good defensive coordinators who put up great defensive schemes. So we're going to have to have talent amongst the skill positions to counteract what they're going to be throwing at us, especially when you're going to be speaking about a situation where the Jets could be playing a rookie quarterback. So it'll see. We will see. We will see. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So with all this hubbubadoo with the Jets trading Sam Darnold to the Carolina Panthers, what does that mean for Justin Fields? And what does that mean for Trey Lance? Well, it depends on what the 49ers do, right? Right? Everybody's talking about they're going to draft Matt Jones. They're going to draft Matt Jones. The 49ers are going to draft Matt Jones. Okay, well, if they do that, the draft really starts at number three. Trevor Lawrence to the Jaguars, no, no, um, no surprise. The New York Jets selecting draft uh, Zach Wilson, now the BYU, no surprise. All right, what are the San Francisco 49ers are going to do? This is when the draft really begins. Because if they pick Matt Jones... All right, if I'm the New England Patriots, if I'm the Washington Ryan Fitzpatrick Skins, if I'm the Chicago Bears, if I'm any of these guys, if I'm the New England Patriots, if I'm the Pittsburgh Steelers, all of a sudden I start taking a look. I start getting a little bit interested. I start making some calls. I start making some notes. I start talking to my coach and GM and owner. What's going on? Okay, here we go. Here we go. Now... It gets interesting because if you're Atlanta, what are you going to do at number four? If you're Cincinnati, what are you going to do at number five? If you're Miami, what are you going to do at number six? If you're Detroit, what are you going to do at number seven? If you're Carolina, what are you going to do at number eight? If you're Denver at number nine, what are you going to do? Dallas at number 10, 11, the New York Giants, the 12th pick, the Philadelphia Eagles. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? Who are you going to select? Can we talk? How interested are you? Let's get down and discuss some things. The L.A. Chargers at number 13. The Minnesota Vikings at number 14. Then we have the New England Patriots, number 15. The Arizona Cardinals, number 16. The Las Vegas Raiders at number 17. The Pittsburgh Steelers at number 18. The 19th selection, the Washington Football Skins. And then number 20, the Chicago Bears. So we're speaking about... 15, 16 selections, draft picks, teams, franchises that could all be in play if you're the Bears, if you're Washington, if you're Pittsburgh. What's happening? What's going on? Now, according to ESPN's Adam Schefter, multiple teams have already reached out to Atlanta to gauge its interest in trading the pick. And the Falcons, according to Schefter, Schefter, like I know this guy, uh, the uh, according to the report by Schefter, the Falcons are open to moving out of the number four slot. Ah, so what's going to be happening? Because the Falcons believe that, uh, it's widely believed that now the Falcons are the first team. If you're a New England, if you're a Washington, if you're a Chicago, if you're any of those guys, and you have the opportunity to go ahead and see what we can do to get either a Trey Lance or maybe a Justin Fields, even though I think if someone is going to be moving up that far, I think in this situation, you got to take a Justin Fields. Trey Lance, I believe, is a guy who might need a year, might need most of the year 
just to get himself acclimated, not only just to the NFL game and to the NFL speed and those type of things. You also got to remember, this is the guy who didn't play football last year, who's been playing football at a 1AA level. Now, Tony Romo and others can attest to the fact that just because you come from a lower tier conference or just from a, not from a, um, a mega school or not from a major football power or a major football college football program or conference, that doesn't automatically mean that you're going to be a bus. See Tony Romo, see Ben Roethlisberger, see Josh Allen, see all those guys. But when you're speaking about someone coming from a one double A school who didn't play football, who had not play football for real in almost in over a year, I think in a situation like that, a guy who was going to be raw to begin with and would need some time to cook and marinate before the product was truly going to be finished and at the optimal point to put him on the field to be successful. I think in this situation for Trey Lance, if I'm an organization, I'm not playing him until later on in the season at best. So because of that, am I willing to spend the number four pick on someone like that? I must, if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to select Trey Lance over Justin Fields, or if I'm going to trade up and make some moves to uh, select a quarterback and it's going to be Trey Lance instead of Justin Fields, I have to be very, very confident in my coaching staff and the locker room and the chemistry and the atmosphere and the program that I'm putting down towards my football team that it could flourish, that it can help develop a quarterback like a Trey Lance to get him rocking and rolling and moving to go. A coach, a quarterback coach, an offensive coordinator, someone on that offense who can say, you know what, the traits I see from this guy, I can work with this. You give me this raw piece of clay and I'll shape you a franchise quarterback that's going to win MVPs and Pro Bowls and championships and all those type of things. It might take a year or two. It might ultimately take another coaching staff. It might take, you know, uh, it might take a couple of years. We might not see a return on our investment for a few years, but when it's ready to bloom, when it's ready to blossom, when it's ready to take charge, when it's ready to do its thing, we're going to have ourselves a gem. We're going to have ourselves an all-pro. We're going to have ourselves a, our franchise quarterback. And the ceiling for Trey Lance in a couple of years, if you put him with me, is going to be something to where he's going to be a top three, top four quarterback. He's going to be in the same discussion as a Patrick Mahomes, as a Trevor Lawrence, as a Josh Allen, if he ever gets his act together, uh, Deshaun Watson. He's going to be in the year 20. 24, 25, you give me Trey Lance and you give me that piece of clay to shape and mold and teach and nurture and learn. Yeah, says this offensive coordinator. Yeah, says this quarterback coach. Yeah, you give me that to work with. Yeah, I'll create you a top three, top four quarterback. With Justin Fields, maybe the, maybe the ceiling for a lot of these teams is not as high as Trey Lance. Where like, yeah, you give me Justin Fields. I could turn him into, him into something special. Yeah, I can do some things with him. Yeah, I can make him a good quarterback if you but if you give me Trey fucking Lance with those goddamn physical attributes and that arm strength, shit. Lord have mercy what I can do with him. So that's the mindset you gotta be, I think, if you're going to decide to move up that high in the draft for maybe you talk to Detroit to move down and maybe you're at number seven. If you're gonna draft Trey Lance over Justin Fields and do it within the first five, seven, eight picks. Okay. All right. You better hope and pray that you have a patient owner 
Because, yeah, you might have that guy blossom and do all those type of things, but get, guess what? By the time he does that, you might be doing play-by-play for CBS or Fox or somebody like that because you would have gotten your ass fired. You know, drafting someone like that, and then if they see or the owner sees or the GMs, whatever, if he sees Justin Fields starting to uh, do a thing and you see Trey Lance still, you know, at the starting block, the owner's going to be like, well, how in the fuck did we pass up on this guy? Did you see what Justin Fields is doing? Do you see how far ahead the Justin Fields is right now compared to Trey Lance? And you drafted Trey Lance on the thought process that in a couple of years, a couple of years, I don't got a couple of fucking years. I need to win right now. And Justin Fields, what he's doing right now, yeah, he might not be Aaron Rodgers. He might not be Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, he might not be Josh Allen right now. But he's farther along than what we got right now with Trey Lance. At least that guy's playing. I'm paying the guy millions of dollars not even to play. What the hell are you doing? You're fired. Get him out of here. That might be the scenario that you might be facing if you draft Trey Lance. And your relationship with your owner is not great. Your relationship with your coach is not great. As a coach, your relationship with your player personnel guy who has the ear of the coach, the president of football operations, whoever that might be, tenuous. You don't know. So... You, you better have some stones and you better have some, uh, some, some conviction and some belief and some religion if you're going to go ahead and make a move to draft Trey Lance over Justin Fields in that scenario. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us talking about this whole deal with uh, Justin Fields. I don't know. I don't, why is he falling? I don't know. what Because he, he had two bad games against Indiana and Northwestern? That's that's his reason, the, the drop? Just because of scheme? Like, well, normally, Justin Fields is the better quarterback than Mac Jones, but Mac Jones fits the San Francisco 49ers scheme and philosophy a lot better. So because of the fit, that's the reason why Mac Jones is being drafted over Justin Fields. It had nothing to do with talent. In the generic offense, yeah, you would go with Justin Fields over Mac Jones. But in this situation, I don't get that. I don't get that. I don't. I, I'm not sitting here saying, "Damn it, there, Kyle Shanahan." I know more about this than you do. You need to be drafting. I'm not going that route. But it's. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I was sitting up there, you know, banging my head and shoot damning every time the Washington Football Team won a game this year because I was like, "Damn, well, if we're not going to be bad enough to draft ourselves a Trevor Lawrence who could turn our franchise and culture around." At least we can go ahead and get ourselves a Justin Fields who might not be as good, but he's damn sure close. I was talking about Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields being the magic and bird. What they did for the NBA back in the 80s, the rivalry that they had, that that could be Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence for the NFL moving into the uh, 20, moving until the, uh, the, the, the decade of 2020 to 2030. That's what I was talking about. That's what I was preaching on. That's what I was speaking on. That's what I was trying to convince to you. And now, Justin Fields, I mean, now we're going to be talking about what? The relationship or the competitive relationship between Zach Wilson and Trevor Lawrence? Mac Jones and Zach Wilson? That's who are we going to be dealing with? That's who's going to be, we're going to, that's what the uh, draft is going to be about in the uh, upper half of the first round? Did anybody hear of Zach Wilson before this season? I know y'all have been 
I know none of y'all are sitting there talking about, yeah, I knew at the beginning of the season that Matt Jones, woo, top five all the way, baby. And, and bullshit, fuck you on that one. I know none of you were talking about that. It was Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields. Now look at what's happening. I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I have no idea what's going now. But I, I'm taking a look. If, if, if you're Atlanta, do you draft him? Matt Ryan? Now, the new coach, Arthur Smith, is talking about he believes Matt Ryan has a year or two more years left of being a productive quarterback. So the thing is that you go ahead and you draft the tight end out of Florida, Kyle Pitts, because you blew everybody away with his uh, pro day. Oh, my goodness, a guy that size who can run that fast and have those good of hands, this, that, and the other. So if you're Atlanta, you're thinking about it. Do you still think that Matt Ryan is, I don't know, what what could he be on his best day? Top Four, number four tops out, number five. Like on any given Sunday, Matt Ryan could be what? At his best, a number four, best quarterback. And on his worst day can be what? A number 19, 18, somewhere around there. So you round it off. We're speaking about someone who could be a top somewhere between nine and 14 as far as ranking the quarterbacks is concerned. So you've got a... You got a quarterback in Atlanta, Matt Ryan, who's going to consistently probably even out as the 12th best quarterback in the league, and you match him with Julio Jones, and you miss, match him with Calvin Ridley, and then you bring this beast of a athlete at the white at the tight end position. And if you're Arthur Smith, you're like, makes sense to me. But as Chris Mortensen was reporting on the ESPN draft special, that he's hearing that there's talk in the Atlanta front office that they're more focused on drafting themselves a quarterback. So what are we going to do here? Where are we going to go here? Who's going to win this tug of war here? Is it going to be the general manager or is it going to be the upper management who believes that they need a quarterback or is it going to be the coach first year coaching and draft themselves a Kyle Pitts or maybe Penny Sewell, the offensive lineman from uh, Oregon or Jamar Chase or who? Who? What's going to be with that? Or are they just going to decide that, you know what, we're just going to uh, trade down, collect more draft picks, and then uh, build our team that way? Atlanta's in that tricky situation. You got Julio Jones, you got Matt Ryan, you got those remnants from uh, the Super Bowl loss to New England, but also then you have Calvin Ridley and you're trying to build the other way. So are we are we still going to be competitive? If you're Atlanta, are you asking yourself, are we still looking to win division titles and do some noise in the playoffs? Are we going to draft ourselves a quarterback and start that rebuilding process that way? If you're going to, I, I can't see a scenario, can you, where they keep Matt Ryan and then they draft Trey Lance with the understanding if Arthur Smith believes that Matt Ryan has a couple of more years left, that it gives someone like a Trey Lance plenty of time to learn under someone like a Matt Ryan without the insecurity from Matt Ryan talking about my job is going to be replaced in six to eight weeks or the first time I have a bad game or two or three or five that all of a sudden I'm going to be benched for Trey Lance. If you can massage the ego of Matt Ryan and let him know, look, man, I mean, we're drafting the guy who didn't even play football at a Division two level last season. You think we're going to be putting him in here game five or week five of uh, next season's NFL uh, uh, season? I don't think so. So, I don't know. So, would Atlanta do that? I don't think so. Why would Atlanta spend a number four pick on a quarterback? 
If you're going to be keeping Matt Ryan, don't spend your draft capital that high on a quarterback. Yeah, you go ahead and get yourself uh, Kyle Pitts. But it again, you, you have to think, all right, so then we go ahead and we take a look at the draft board if the uh, Falcons select that tight end from Florida. Cincinnati Cincinnati has Joe Burrow. They ain't getting a quarterback. Uh, Miami has Tua. They ain't getting a quarterback. Carolina just traded for Sam Darnold. They're not interested. So what are we doing here? Jared Goff is now with Detroit. If you're an alliance with an opportunity to draft yourselves a Trey Lance or a Justin Fields, do you do that? What would that mean for Jared Goff? Damn, we just got this guy, and already you're looking to replace me? Hey, man, sometimes the Bethlehem plans need to be changed. We didn't think that uh, Justin Fields was going to be um, available to us. If we would have known that, we wouldn't have traded for your ass. Who knows? Who knows? But you've got Justin Herbert at the uh, Chargers at 13. They don't need one. Kirk Cousins is with Minnesota. They don't need one. Arizona, Kyler Murray, they don't need one. Derek Carr with Las Vegas, they don't need one. So now you've got someone like a Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh would be awesome for someone like a Trey Lance. A year to learn from Ben Roethlisberger. With Roethlisberger's understanding where it's like, look, man, you're 38, 39 years old and your arm's shot. You really think that we're going to be able to put all of our faith into you for another three or four years? No. Washington needs a quarterback. Chicago is going in a roll with Andy Dalton, really. You don't think they have an opportunity to get Justin Fields or Trey Lance? They're not going to do it. If you're looking to win right now, if you got a team that's more ready to win right now, someone like a Washington, someone like a Chicago with that defense, someone like a Pittsburgh who's never really in rebuilding mode, you go with someone like a uh, Justin Fields. But if you're someone like, I don't know, maybe New England, maybe Pittsburgh, who's going to try to extract one more year out of Ben Roethlisberger, maybe you do go ahead and then draft yourself a Trey Lance. I don't know. If you're Detroit, I think you go ahead. There's scenarios for each one. If you get yourself Justin Fields, if you're Detroit, then the clock, the expiration date for Jared Goff is moved up exponentially. If the Denver Broncos go ahead and draft themselves a Justin Fields, I hope Drew Locke is running and not buying. If the Patriots go ahead and move up, shouldn't they be looking to get themselves to Justin Fields, who's more ready to play right now than Trey Lance? I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. But it's it's an interesting dilemma that these guys have to deal with. So Trey Lance, Justin Fields, you know, Detroit, um, Philadelphia, what are they? Are they really going to be? Are they really married to um, to Jalen Hurts if they have the opportunity to draft themselves a Justin Fields? I don't think you would draft if you're Philadelphia. You don't draft yourself a Trey Lance if you have someone a quarterback that you're already trying to develop in Jalen Hurts. If you draft um, Justin Fields, it's an open competition between those two. If you draft Trey Lance, I mean, what are we like going to mimic the uh, Dallas Cowboys with Jimmy Johnson back in the day where they had Steve Walsh and Troy Aikman trying to figure out who would be the uh, quarterback for the future? Aikman won, Troll, uh, Walsh was traded. Are we going to do that with the uh, Detroit Lions? If they draft themselves uh, Trey Lance, you just got yourself a quarterback and that was the number seven pick. You're going to draft a developmental quarterback on the hope and praying that 
this guy's going to be a, a superstar franchise quarterback in three years? I don't know. I don't know. Jared Goff is a game manager. And that's what he is, man. His numbers have declined the past two seasons after being a pro bowler in 2017 and 18. Yeah, in 18, he was awesome. 4,600 yards, 32 touchdown passes, took the ramp to the Super Bowl. But after he froze up against New England in a dreadful Super Bowl, which the uh, Patriots won 13-3, he dropped off the cliff, and he dropped off the cliff a lot. In 2019, he had 22 touchdowns and a career worth 16 interceptions. And then this past season, he threw just 20 touchdowns and was uh, being benched for a uh, backup quarterback from Wake Forest that no one ever heard of. So with that resume, Detroit looking to rebuild, but all of a sudden now, hold on, hold on, we have an opportunity to get ourselves uh, Justin Fields. Do you do that? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, the quarterback situation in this draft, which we all love, we all love ourselves a little quarterback drama, is going to be taking place in less than a month. Lance, Fields, exactly where are them brothers going to go in the draft? Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Talking about what's happening, going on in the world of sports. Talking about what's happening, going on in the world. Talking about what's happening. Just what's happening. What's happening? You good? You feeling all right? (laughs) Oh, man. What a day. What a day. And the league gets better. Hey, I was uh, taking a look at some other NFL offseason news of interest. Hi, yeah, 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 yeah. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers cornerback Carlton Davis apologized on Twitter on Sunday after he sent a tweet using an anti-Asian slur. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. He tweeted, going to stop letting gooks in Miami. What, what, what? Why? 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 If you're going to say it to one of your friends or something like that, I mean, okay, keep your ignorance to a small group of people. But to go ahead and say that on Twitter? Why? Why? He later apologized talking about he claimed that he was speaking about a specific producer in Miami and cited an urban dictionary definition of the word that claimed it had a different meaning in South Florida specifically. The world is bigger than South Florida, you fucking moron! Of course, that definition underneath the top definition that clearly labels the word as a derogatory uh, slur against Asian people. Yeah, no shit. 
No shit. That's like, that would be like, um, I don't know. Maybe some white guy talking about, they got to step let, let niggas in Miami. And then the guy's like, well, I, you know, I mean, I was listening to some rap music. And, uh, you know, I just kind of uh, was feeling the groove. And I just thought I'd put it there. Do you think black folks are going to sit there with a white guy and be like, oh, okay, that's cool. Come on, man. What kind of fucking bullshit is that? Gooks? Where, where in South Florida? Something's wrong in South Florida then. Something's wrong in South Florida if that word is supposed to be appropriate. Like, I got an Asian Asian. I got to ask, I got to ask the Asian community, is that okay? Is that copacetic? Is there anywhere in this country, anywhere in this world where that's cool? The Asian community that's in South Florida, do y'all get called that? And it's like, yeah, that's, we're just, you know, chilling. Yeah, no big deal. What, what is going on with that bullshit? What is going on with that nonsense? You know, like when white folks are sitting there talking about, yeah, well, we say nigger, but I mean, you know, they call each other that, so why can't we? I mean, really? Now all of a sudden, we're starting to use that bullshit reasoning for other slurs for people? So, if, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know where, is there any place in America, in the world, where spics is supposed to be appropriate or cool or slang? Now, maybe with other Asians calling each other gooks, maybe that's something, you know, like we call each other niggas and it's all right. You know, black folks other call other black folks niggas and it's all right, this, that, and the other. So is there a world that I'm not aware of where other Asians call each other, you know, Asians call each other Asians gooks and it's kind of like, well, yeah, we can say that, but, you know, I mean, come on, man. Have a brain in your head. I mean, is, is, is it something like that? I mean, I need to know what the Hispanics are. There, do y'all call yourselves spicks like we call ourselves niggas? And it's kind of like, yeah, we say that with each other, but we definitely ain't going to let anybody else say that shit, you know, for the most part. Is, is that like something where, I don't know. I just need to know because it sounds pretty ridiculous to me. Because I remember when Nate Diaz or Nick Diaz, one of the Diaz brothers, remember when he called somebody a faggot? And he got in trouble, and it's like, well, in Stockton, we call, I mean, that's a slang. I mean, that's something in Stockton that we say all the time, and it's no big deal. So I had no idea it was offensive to uh, gay people. Really? Really? That's the excuse you're going to use? Really? Okay. Again, I need to ask the gay community, is it ever appropriate to call you guys a faggot? And it's like, hey, well, you know, in this in this part of town, it's a-okay. You know, we hear gays calling each other that name all the time. You know, two gays are walking down the street. Oh, you faggot, this, that, and the other. Oh, faggot, please stop. I mean, uh, is, is that uh, something? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, you know, we use, we have certain terms, and this, that, and the other. Oh, nigga, get out of here with that. Nigga, get out of here with that shit, this, that, and the other. Depending upon what um, race you are, do you just su substitute the word nigga and put in the slur for uh, whatever ethnicity you have? So, like I mentioned before, if two Asian folks are hanging out and talking and being real, I mean, y'all say, oh, Gook, please get, the, get out of here with that stuff. Gook, you must be cool. You must be kidding me. I mean, do y'all do that? Oh, Spick, please. What are you talking about? I mean, do, do, I, I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea. But for um, Carlton Davis to say that, oops, my bad, I had no idea that it was a derogatory Come on, man! You gotta, you gotta do better than that. So, again, he, he he apologized, and then of course he goes to the well. You know, you got to bark up the wrong tree, Frank. Uh, trying to make a mountain out of a molehill. So he said on Twitter, "I would never offend any group of people 
You reporters can look for another story to blow up. The term was directed towards a producer claiming he ran Miami. With that being said, I'll retire that word from my vocabulary, giving, giving the hard times our Asian family are enduring. Again, let, let, let's bring it back to my community, huh? Let's bring it back to the black community. If a white player or a white person, especially after the last four years we had to endure where you know racism was just fucking revved up, where racism came out of the closet. Now, now white folks had never, had never been as bold to be as racist as they are, or some white folks had never been as bold as to show their racism as when the head racist in chief was in the White House. You know, it was like, you know, free to be racist day for four years. So, you know, it, if, if that shit had taken place from a white guy who would have tweeted something using the word nigger, nigger, whatever, and he said, ah, you know what? You know, I, I've got black friends. My black friends call me that all the time. I call them that all the time. It's no big deal. You know, it's just, I got a little carried away, you know, putting it on Twitter. If I offended anybody, I'm sorry, but, you know, y'all need to go look for another story because it's no big deal. Would the majority of black folks from the neighborhood sit there and be like, okay, yeah, it's cool. (laughs) You know, Richie Incognito, right? Richie Incognito running around calling uh, Jonathan uh, Davis nigga this, nigga that, this, that, and the other. And it's like, yeah, you know what? I'm hanging around with black guys who say that all the time. So I'm part of the group. I'm part of the neighborhood. I'm part of the barbecue. I'm just going to go ahead. No, no, no. So why, if it's unacceptable for white folks to have that type of attitude when it comes to racial slurs concerning us, why is it then, uh, if it's not, why is it then okay for Carlton Davis to dismiss using that racial slur toward another uh, community of color and, Basically, he's acting like white people do when they get caught, you know, with their privilege or with their racism and be like, ah, you know, to minimize it. To be like, ah, no big deal. Stop being so damn sensitive. So what Carlton Davis is doing in terms for the Asian community is something that black the black community gets infuriated with because that's what the white community does for uh, certain instances concerning using a racial slur. So no, I can't have, I, no, 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 no. Oh, this motherfucker was fucking stupid. What he said was racist. And the fact that he's just kind of like, I don't know, blowing it off or making not, not really a big, a big deal out of it shows that he ain't learned shit. Shows that in this area, he is ignorant. He is showing intolerance. He is showing discrimination. He is showing stupidity. All of them damn things I would have said if a white guy would have used that uh, racial slur to black folks and then have the same cavalier attitude so no man that's bullshit that's bullshit for him to be saying that type of shit and then just like oh whatever no big deal now Buccaneers GM the Buccaneers GM Jason Light released a statement on Monday about Davis's offensive tweet emphasizing that he and the organization want to help Davis learn from what he did oh man come on man get out of here get out of here you know what the real deal is about this Davis had a career high 68 tackles Four interceptions the last season. He was an integral part of the defense that helped the Buccaneers win the Super Bowl. He's 24 years old, and he's going to enter the final year of his rookie deal with the Buccaneers. That's what this is all about. That is what this is all about. And this is what happens, not just in sports, but in life in general, when you have somebody 
who's important to the bottom line of what that franchise or business is looking to accomplish. Same thing, same deal. If you're an employee of a business and you're someone who's, who's uh, valuable and can help that business achieve that goal, whether it's revenue, whether it's in sports championships or whatever, when you show your stupidity, when you show your ignorance, when you show your bigotry, when you show all of those things and you're valuable to that company, then the, that employer, then that owner, then those who are in charge, they, after, of course, expressing their displeasure and disappointment in that employee and the actions of what he did or what he said or who he offended, and then they say, well, we don't condone that. We're not all about that, this, that, and the other. We vehemently uh, oppose those type of thoughts or those type of actions or those type of words or those type of meanings or those type of feelings. After they go through this, after they go through the bullshit, after they go through the hullabaloo of talking about, oh, this is terrible and we don't condone this and, you know, no one should be treated like this or those things shouldn't be said. Then they go to the, well, the person who had that offense, the person who made those remarks the person who put himself in the light of looking like a racist, bigoted idiot, we're going to go ahead and he's going to face disciplinary action and then we'll have him uh, go to sensitivity training or he's going to go to the Asian community or he's going to go to the black community or he's going to go to the leaders of that community to be educated on what he said to make sure that he doesn't make that same mistake again. So deep down, he's really a good guy. Deep down, he's not a bigot. Deep down, he's not a racist. Deep down, no ill intent, no ill meaning. He just made a mistake. Oops, my bad. Whether you use the word gook, spick, nigger, fag, whatever, if that person who said it, whoever he is, if he's valuable to that company, if he's valuable to that franchise, and they need him to accomplish their goals, Somehow, some way, they will find a way to keep him on board while, of course, stating at the beginning, we don't condone what he did. Right? That's usually what happens. Not just in sports, not just in the NFL, not just uh, with uh, in a particular race. That's the way it is. If Carlton Davis was a third stringer of no, of no ill repute, of no consequence, who didn't, you know, factor in or figure into the team's goals of winning or the company's goals of maximizing their earning potential, then that guy would have been gone. That guy would have been fired and then made an example of. And then the same people who would have said, we don't condone this, this is horrible. So because of this mistake, we're going to send this guy to sensitivity training and we're going to have someone from the other community come across and teach him and educate him and make him a better person because of that. When that person is no longer useful, when that person is no longer valuable, you know what they do? They fire his ass and then make a, an example of him and say, well, we don't condone this. We don't tolerate this. We have zero tolerance for those type of things. If Carlton Davis was a guy who was not contributing at all to the success of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and he made that ignorant, stupid, bigoted tweet, too many gooks in Miami, if he was a non-factor, his ass would be gone. Gone. And Jason Light and those guys would have sat there and said, we don't condone this, zero tolerance, we don't allow it, we don't want anybody making those type of statements to be part of our family, to be part of our business, to be part of our organization. Funny how that is when someone can actually help you achieve your goals, how you'll 
have to educate him. How you'll have to let him see the errors of his ways and help him become a better person in that situation opposed to, well, we don't condone that. You're gone. Get out of here. Happens in sports. Happens in life. What I want to see is, I want to hear from the NFL Players Coalition concerning this matter and what his punishment should be. Me, personally, I don't think that... uh, Carlton Davis should be banned from the NFL or something like that. And it's not just because, well, you know, you have a, like a pecking order here. If you say something derogatory and racist and ignorance toward black, well, then you're gone. But if you say it towards someone who's Hispanic or you say it about someone who's Asian or say it to someone who's of Arab descent or you say it to someone who's a homosexual, then, you know, there's like a pecking order. If you say it against a black person, you're going to be cut and fined and suspended six games. If you say it against someone who's gay or lesbian, you'll be uh, suspended, fined for four games. If you say it against someone who's an Asian, then you'll get probation. If you say it against someone who's uh, of a mixed race, uh, you'll just get a slap on the wrist. I don't, so there's a pecking order, just like in life, there's a pecking order in all of this. What I want to hear is from the Players Coalition. What I want to hear is from Malcolm Jenkins. What I want to hear is from um, Larry Fitzgerald. What I want to hear is from those folks. That's what I want to hear from concerning this matter. Because Lord knows if this was a white ball player, football player, who made a derogatory tweet concerning black folks, you know Malcolm Jenkins would say something. You know Larry Fitzgerald would say something. You know Anquan Bolden would say something. something. You know that would happen. And damn right they better. Damn right they better along with a lot of other black players in the NFL, along with a lot of other white players in the NFL, and something like that happened. I want to hear concerning this matter what Malcolm Jenkins, what Anquan Bolden, what the Players Coalition, which was founded in 2017, governed by 11 voting members, with the mission statement of we continue to grow in numbers of ambassadors with the collective goal of making an impact on social justice and racial equality at the federal, state, and local levels through advocacy, awareness, education, and allocation of resources. So our supporters are solution-focused and invest personal time and resources to educate themselves on various issues affecting their communities with the goal of identifying where their influence can have the greatest impact. All right. I want to hear what you guys have to say about this. I want to hear what you guys have to say about this. Awfully quiet. Awfully quiet. Come on, man. I mean, you were taking Drew Brees and Malcolm Jenkins was distraught beyond words words when Drew Brees was talking about his thoughts and feelings about the flag. I don't know if Drew Brees could ever be welcomed back into this locker room. Drew Brees is going to have to, you know, really do some work to gain our trust again after what he said. All of these things that Drew Brees, all of the hoops that Drew Brees had to jump through, correctly so, correctly so, correctly so. But all of the things that Drew Brees had to do just to have the conversation, why aren't we having that for Carlton Davis? What uh, Drew Brees said about the American flag showed uh, a sense of not being around, not being out of touch and being kind of ignorant in that situation, but it wasn't bigoted. It wasn't based in racism as Carlton Davis using the goop term to describe Asians. That's ignorance. That's bigotry. That's racism. What are we going to do about that, Malcolm? Where are you? Say something. Condemn it. Say something. Hmm. 
pisses me off when you get that bullshit. It really does. It really does. But, uh, yeah, Carlton Davis. And, and, again, I'm not saying Carlton Davis should never play a football game again or nothing like that. But something seriously needs to be done. As I mentioned before, just, just pretend that Carlton Davis was a white guy and he used a racial slur to describe black folks. Take it from that level. And then we'll move on from there. And again, the Players Coalition, Malcolm Jenkins, who does good work, who is, uh, who's needed, whose purpose is needed and valuable. Come on, man. I need you to uh, say something about this. What's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. What's racist is racist. What's bigoted is bigoted. No matter race, creed, or color, whatever, man. We need to hear what you have to say because if not, a lot of credibility is going to be lost in your part. If you continue to keep your head in the sand, play the background role when it comes to certain levels or certain degrees or certain examples of racist behavior. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Last segment of the podcast. So glad, so glad, so glad that you could be with me. For this time, speaking about college basketball, the season is over. I was really more interested. I'm going to be more interested in the Kenner League with Georgetown than I am with the college basketball, the NCAA championship. But the Baylor Bears are the champions of the college basketball world. And... It's not even close. Completely and thoroughly dominated. Previously unbeaten Gonzaga, 86-70. to 70. Man, what in the world was... Gonzaga was completely trampled, physically outclassed. That was like a man playing against a bunch of boys, man. You know what it kind of reminded me of? Maybe not to this degree because UNLV beat up Duke by 30. But it was like, in a small way, reminded me of the 1990 NCAA championship game between UNLV and Duke, just in terms of the physical difference, you had like skinny little Kristen Leitner and Bob Hurley, who looked like he was 12 years old, and the guys were going up against Moses Scurry and 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 Larry Johnson and, and Anderson Hunt and those guys, and it, it looked like Larry Johnson at the time looked like he was about 32 years old, fully fully built, fully formed NFL linebacker. I mean, you had Moses Scurry, who you know, who, who looked like you know, looked like a guy who just, who had just finished his job as a as, as a guard down over down at San Quentin. I mean, it was it was like, man, what the hell was going on here? 
bigger, stronger, faster, meaner, hungrier, everything. And Duke looked like they wanted no part of UNLV. It looked like five Mike Tysons out there playing basketball against five, I don't know, I don't know, Brooklyn Brawlers. I don't know. It was it was horrible. So that was the sort of beatdown that I was thinking about as Butler was just physically beating the snot out of Gonzaga. And Gonzaga was sitting up there looking like, what in the name of holy hell have we gotten ourselves into, man? It looked athletically, it looked like a bunch of grown, professionally skilled men playing against some real nice college kids. You know what I'm saying? Jared Butler scored 22 points. Macy Oteague had 19 for Baylor. And uh, mentioned the Baylor was 28 and 2. Everyone's sitting there talking about Gonzaga, Gonzaga, 1976, Indiana, Gonzaga, Gonzaga. Well, I mean, you know, as I mentioned before at the beginning of the podcast, Baylor lost two games, but. Their season was postponed for three weeks after COVID-19 break, you know, put the uh, season on hold. But they were 17-0 at the time and spent the rest of the season in conference tournament basically getting their group back without Stella. And after losing to Kansas during the regular season, Oklahoma State during the conference tournament, after that, man, it was like, you know, seek, destroy, no doubt, no questions, no, no anything. They outscored... Speaking about Baylor, they outscored all six of their opponents in the tournament by an average of 15 points. They beat Houston by 19 in the Final Four game, and then less than five minutes into the final, they were up by double digits against Gonzaga, and it was like, man, this is uh, this ain't looking good. And at no time, no time during that uh, game, did it was like, oh, it looks like Gonzaga might be. No, no, it was straight from the get go. No, it was like physically. Um, Baylor was going to impose their will and Gonzaga was going to get nothing and they were going to not like it or accept it. I'm sorry, they were going to not like it, but they were going to have to accept it because Baylor was giving out nothing. The front court physically dominated them. The back court, the guards were highly successful in terms of slowing down uh, the, the, uh, the tempo that Gonzaga wanted to play in. It was, it was over, man. It was over. And again, it was a situation where I think many people, including myself, including myself, bought into the hype that, you know what, Gonzaga, I mean, this was a situation where they played Virginia when they were ranked and beat them up. They played Kansas and put 102 on them when Kansas was ranked in the top five. They put on uh, close to 100 points against Iowa, a team that plays up-tempo and had the best big men or had the best player in uh, college basketball. Every every team that they played, Gonzaga imposed their will and just took it to them. In the final Elite Eight game against UC, USC, Evan Mobley, guy who's going to be drafted in the top three or four, nothing, zero, zip. USC was good. And Gonzaga took them apart. But man, I um, we didn't see it. All of those things were like, yeah, buts, where it was kind of like, this is the reason why Gonzaga doesn't have the advantage over Baylor. All of that was like, yeah, buts. The fact that, you know, Baylor came into the game better tested than Gonzaga throughout the year. The fact that Baylor was blowing out everybody they played and Gonzaga was very fortunate fortunate to even get into the title game after their game against UCLA. And at the beginning, it was like, well, you know, UCLA, 
that game against UCLA, it took a lot of out of took a lot out of Gonzaga, and they're coming in and they're flat, and mentally they're not there, and this, that, and the other. That that might have been something if it wasn't so obvious from the get go that Baylor looked physically much more imposing, much more you know impressive. So this wasn't a situation where once Gonzaga shook out of their you know their their funk. They're lull and got into the game that they would be able to uh, get back into a groove or anything. No, it wasn't that end at all because physically they weren't able to. And what made matters even worse, Gonzaga was like, we had never seen anything like this before. I mean, we're playing in the WCC where we're playing against St. Mary's and Pepperdine and San Francisco and Bill Walton, excuse me, and, and Bill Russell and Casey Jones aren't walking through that door, so we can handle them. And we're playing these mid-major to low-major squads in the WCC. We ain't seen nothing like this. And even when they played Kansas, even when they played Iowa, even when they played Virginia, how many pros are on those teams? How many NBA physical type of specimens are on those teams? Let alone a boatload of them like they played against Baylor. I think the speed, I think the athleticism, I think the physicality, Threw Baylor, uh, threw Gonzaga off. They had never faced anything like this. So it was a situation where right from the get-go, man, we should have seen that, you know what? Hey, playing in a conference that actually means something, that actually has, you know, a situation where you're going to be playing uh, some really good competition compared to the WCC where teams like Texas A&M or teams like um, TCU, while, you know, they're not world beaters, while they're not uh, tournament teams, uh, they're still better to be facing on a nightly basis than facing Pepperdine or facing St. Mary's or facing or Loyola Marymount. And Baylor came in, you know, they played, they played 12 ranked teams prior to Monday night's game. Gonzaga faced just six. And one of the things that Gonzaga has always had the advantage of is the fact that they can schedule the hell out of their preseason. They can go ahead and play ranked teams on the road, play them at neutral sites, play in these college uh, preseason tournaments, and they can do all that. And doesn't really matter what type of talent they had. Now, before they reached the talent level that they are right now where, you know, basically they're the, they're the cream of the crop, if I could use that phrase in terms of uh, the blue bloods of college basketball. So they're, they're not at a disadvantage anymore in terms of where they play, who they play, what time of the year that they're playing. They're now on the same level as a Villanova or a Duke or a Kentucky or something like that on a year-in-the-year-out basis, even though the Wildcats and even though Duke um, were substandard and below standard by their expectations uh, this season, but you know, on a year in a year out basis, Gonzaga is right there with the best of the best as far as college basketball is concerned. So for them to go ahead and go to a preseason tournament and play a Michigan State caliber team or to play a Kentucky caliber team or to play a Duke caliber team, whether it be neutral or whether it be on the road, it really doesn't matter because now that program is at the level to where it's even Steven. But um, in the past, before they got to that level, on a consistent basis. Gonzaga coming in as maybe a team ranked number 12, ranked number 15, ranked number 20 in the preseason. They could come in and sharpen their skills and find out where they are as a team and play really tough competition and get a, a taste of what 
tough competition is going to be all about if they're going to be trying to make a run in the NCAA tournament. Those guys could do that and go into conference three and five or two and six or four and four because it really didn't matter. It didn't even matter where they were ranked. It didn't matter because you knew they were going to win the WCC unless Randy Bennett or BYU had something to say about it. You knew they were going to win the WCC and you knew they were going to win the conference tournament. So they could take their lumps. They could take their losses during the preseason and it really wouldn't affect them because they were so dominant above all the other teams in their conference. And as I mentioned before, it seemed like every other year, unless it was uh, St. Mary's, they were going to win the, um, the, the conference tournament. So who cares if we're going to be losing and playing Memphis with John Calipari with the coach there and play them at the play them at FedEx Forum? Who cares if they were going to go to Madison Square Garden and play the top-ranked teams in the country? Who cares? Doesn't matter. Because when you get in the conference and you're playing Santa Clara and you're playing Loyola Marymount and you're playing Pepperdine, we're going to uh, go ahead, we're going to build that momentum, and we're going to get into the tournament. But in this situation where they're now at the top, near the top, at the VIP table in terms of the elite of college basketball. Now it's a situation where, you know, they're blowing out everybody. All of a sudden they play a team like um, Baylor. They get behind. They don't know what to do. We haven't faced a team like this. We haven't been in a position like this. And I guess it became very early to those guys where it's kind of like, not only have we never been in a position like this this season where we're getting our ass whooped like this, Physically, I don't know what we can do to overcome it unless we just give the ball to Jalen Shrugs and just tell him to go one on five because he looked like he was the only player who was wearing a Gonzaga uniform who could match the type of athletes that Baylor was putting up on the court against them. Corey Kispert. That's the sound of his draft stock falling, falling, falling. Drew Timmy who was like, hey, you know, the way he played against USC and Evan Mobley, there's a situation where, you know, this guy could really rise up the draft boards if he continues to do what he's doing and Gonzaga goes undefeated, blah, blah, blah. We might be looking at a guy who might declare for the NFL draft. NFL draft. The, the, uh, declare for the NBA draft and be drafted in the first round the way Drew Timmy is playing. Well, all of those things went bye-bye. All of those things, back to life, back to reality. Look, Kispert is still going to be a guy who's going to have a position in the pros. He's still going to have a job in the pros because the guy can shoot. But um, last night was his last night ever of being in a position of that type of importance for a basketball team. Unless he wants to take his talents to Hungary. Unless he wants to join the um, Lithuania Basketball League. But if he's looking to play in the NBA, last night was the last time in his basketball, professional basketball playing career, that he'll ever have the responsibilities put upon him as he did last night or have the impact of whether he plays well or not. That'll be the last time in his basketball playing career professionally that that will ever happen. So, you know, Drew Timmy, stay in college for another year, man. Bulk up a little bit more. I mean, you really can't help. You're not going to, you know, you're not athleticism-wise, you're not going to be able to, you know, get to the point where, you know, but still, you need to stay in college another year, maybe come out your, your junior year. But um, just an, just an all-around all beatdown from a situation like this. Gonzaga's first loss in 32 games this season, 36 if you go back to the 2019-2020 season. 
but that uh, ends the deal of them trying to get to uh, 32 and 0 with uh, Indiana. But they're still an awesome program. Look at Chet Holmgren, and uh, they'll remain where they are. They're starting to really recruit good players. Mark Few is an awesome coach. He's going to go down as a guy who's going to be underrated when everything is all said and done. But uh, still hasn't won a championship yet. But, um, you know, what he's done taking over from Dan Monson and going to the next level with a program like Gonzaga that plays in the WCC, but basically had them be the, the class, clearly the class of the West Coast in one of the best basketball programs going bar none. And doing it in Spokane, Washington while playing in the WCC, remarkable, absolutely remarkable. What Mark Few, his assistant coaches and everything associated, everyone associated with that basketball program has done for Gonzaga. All right, that's it. I'm done. I'm out of here. I want to thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I'm going to end this podcast today. I have been really jamming. I've been really intrigued about the life and career of excuse me, of Jackie Wilson. <clears throat> Mr. Dynamite, Mr. Excitement, I don't know which, which one it was, but um, yeah, I've been really been um, learning a lot about Jackie Wilson and uh, I'm going to end it with a little ditty from him. This was from an ABC concert back in 1973. The way he went out, uh, horrible, terrible. He uh, suffered a heart attack in 1975 after being ripped off by his manager and uh, not having any money, you know, he continued to tour and do his thing. So in 1975, he was uh, playing someplace in New Jersey and he had a heart attack on the stage and people were like, Oh, this is that Jackie. Woo-hoo! And I'm like, wait a minute, that, that ain't part of the act. So they revived them. They, they saved his life. But in doing so, um, basically he went into a coma. Basically, he became a vegetable. Basically, for the next nine years, he was in a nursing home. And cognizant, he was there. He knew where he was. But because of the stroke or the heart attack that he had, he couldn't move. He couldn't speak. He couldn't do anything. So imagine being like that for nine fucking years. It happened to him in 1975. And he finally died of pneumonia and neglect and malnutrition and everything else in 1984. So he spent nine years basically as a guy who knew his surroundings, knew what was happening, knew what was going on, but physically couldn't do anything. He couldn't move. He couldn't talk. He couldn't do anything. Couldn't feed himself. Couldn't do anything. Terrible. Horrible. But uh, so, you know, one of the legends, guy who inspired James Brown, guy who inspired Michael Jackson, guy who inspired Elvis Presley. Basically, Elvis Presley, who stole everything from black folks anyway, so, you know, no surprise there. Basically, he stole his old act from Jackie Wilson. At least tried to. Jackie was far more superior, but, you know, those two became friends, Jackie and Elvis Presley. And Elvis was the one who kept Jackie in that nursing home in terms of paying the bills and everything because, as I mentioned before, he didn't have any money. But, you know, Jackie lived a tough life, lived a hard life, lived a complicated life, lived a violent life. He told Elvis, you know, he would take a boatload of salt pills and then drink gallons upon gallons of water before going out to perform. And Elvis is like, why are you doing that for? Because and Jackie was like, well, if you do that, you'll sweat profusely. And the women ask, well, we'll just love it. Or as he said, the chicks love it. But really can't be healthy for the heart, hypertension, all those type of things. But... You know, Jackie Wilson, the legend, the great one, 
pioneer things that um, we should be learning, things that we should be knowing. And we're going to sit there and have the bullshit of, of, of Elvis Presley being the king of rock and roll, which is complete and utter bullshit, nonsense, privilege, ignorant to call that clown the king of the king of rock and roll. That's a fucking joke and a half. But, you know, during the time, white folks, this, that, and the other. Then we should also know, uh, you know, with education, Jackie Wilson, James Brown, and others, that, yeah, Elvis, king of rock and roll, uh, yeah, new generation, educated gener- gender, uh, generation, I'm calling bullshit. So enjoy, Jackie, peace, love, togetherness, harmony, unity. Let's get ready to jam. Listen. 